G'day, everybody, and for those who are coming late, you're listening to X Band, the Phantom Podcast. The year is 2040. The place is Metropia. Here, a new hero prepares for action. The man who cannot die. The ghost who walks. The phantom. The phantom's pledge to fight evil and injustice wherever they may be found. In this future world, in this dying city, with the fate of the Earth and all humanity in the balance, the Phantom is there. We are the X-Band the Phantom podcast from Chronicle Chamber. Our website is chroniclechamber.com and you can contact us via email, which is chroniclechamber at gmail.com. You can subscribe to us via YouTube, iTunes, or various other Android apps. This is episode 173 with Tom Schillinger. My name is Jermaine, and today I'm joined by Dan. How are you, mate? Very good, Jermaine. Good morning. Yeah, it's uh, not often we do a morning podcast. Um, we're usually in the evening after the kids have gone to bed. We're, we're trying to squeeze one in before they wake up this morning. Yes. Um, and that's the reason why uh, Stephen's not with us uh, today. Um, uh, as, as anyone with young kids would know, that sometimes kids do not wake up in a very good manner. And, um, and that's what he's dealing with at the moment. So our thoughts are with um, Stephen. Maybe he should have put on some episodes of Phantom 2040 to help calm them down. Um, <laughs> Sunday morning cartoons. That's yes. the answer. <laughs> now, I'm very excited about today's podcast because um, we're going to be doing Phantom 2040. Um, uh, so Phantom 2040 is a French uh, slash American animated TV series that aired from September the 18th, 1994 to March third in 96 there was 35 episodes overall and the series was generally well accepted by phantom fans as well as other fans as well from the series uh we've gotten video games comic books and also some merchandise as well uh steven what are your thoughts on the um series mate did you enjoy it oh sorry dan did i just call you steven um yeah you did that that's right and it glitched in oh you go that all good um, I, I, um, I didn't tune into the, the comic, the, the series when it was, um, live, I guess, in, in Australia, um, just the wrong age for me. I was first year uni, um, and had other things on my, on my agenda, I suppose, than, than the Saturday, Sunday morning cartoons. Um, so I didn't actually see it until probably only four or five years ago. I actually sat down to watch the, watch the series. So I came at it from a very different angle than probably the uh, intended or the target audience. I was going to ask Tom about that uh, a little bit later. But, um, yeah, certainly you said they're generally accepted by Phantom fans. I was just really impressed with the amount of um, nods to um, mm. what I understood to be the true Phantom sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was really consistent with, with I guess, um, the newspaper strip lore and um, the general idea of what it meant to be the fan. Lots of nods to um, nod, nods to Lee Fork tropes and that sort of thing. So, yeah, from that perspective, I certainly enjoyed it and, and felt that it was uh, an authentic piece uh, of Phantom uh, work, I guess, albeit set at that time, I guess, 50 years in the future. 
Yeah, it's only 40 years away now. Oh, 20 years away now. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> We've advanced. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, for myself, I would have been – I'd just become a Phantom fan at that stage. And um, I, I remember timing my going to the beach uh, run around when 2040 came on in the um, – on Saturday mornings and, and stuff like that. So I was a huge fan. And I know Joe, who also founded Chronicle Chamber, uh, mm-hmm. is a huge fan of 2040 as well. So I'm sure he's getting a big kick out of um, out of listening to this podcast. So anyway, that's enough of us waffling. I reckon let's uh, invite Tom. Um, Tom, uh, welcome. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me on today. I appreciate that. No worries. So, um, yeah, so you've got a couple of uh, fans here from Australia. Now, um, I was just wondering if you could uh, introduce yourself, uh, basically, you know, just give us the, your age or your age range, what you studied, the background that you were in, uh, and then some stuff about what you've worked on, and then we can kind of go from there. Sounds good. Uh, I'm 53. I went to, uh, in the States, I went to Art Center College of Design through their uh, industrial design program, transportation design. And car designers tend to either work in car design or in concept work. Uh, I was originally going to a competitor school in Detroit. And in 1985, I saw Sid Mead, who's kind of the premier futurist. He gave a speech at Rochester High School happened to be a Madonna's high school there in Michigan. And when I saw what you can do, it really changed the direction of my life. Uh, I realized that uh, I wanted to go into entertainment design. Uh, he was a futurist. It was, he used his industrial design training to what would things look like, not just a car five, 10 years from now. But I mean, at the time we did Phantom, that was, you know, 30 to 40 years actually 50 years ahead Um, so as industrial designers were trained to do projects like that and at that moment I transferred from my school in Detroit went to Art Center finished up my training graduated in 91 I worked in set design for a little bit uh, did some restaurant design and then I was offered the position in 1993 to help develop the Phantom and it was for the Hearst Corporation, which has owned the Phantom property, I, I want to say in the States until day one. So they knew the Phantom really well. They had Prince Valiant as an animated show, and this was the next show they were developing. And since then, I have worked in entertainment design now for about 30 years. I do a lot. I, I guess my bread and butter is movie posters would be number one. And I do Imagineering work for Walt Disney Uh, I do theme park design for other clients. Uh, I have a variety of other little tiny, I do 3D printing and product design and I work with architects, but I would say 90% of my work are movie posters. I do 3D illustrations. So I do a lot of logos for superhero movies. I did the Aquaman logo, Shazam. Those are the newest ones. I did the posters for X-Men 2, X-Men 3, X-Men 5, uh, Superman Returns. uh, And I do a lot of 3D illustration as well. Uh, Sometimes it's very concept-based, which the Phantom was, and other times I'm just rebuilding props from films that they need at the right angle for a poster. But uh, I've worked all the way up to being a 3D design director, but I have been self-employed for the past 11 years, and I relocated out of Los Angeles 
to Colorado where I grew up as a kid and I work 100% remote. So it kind of set me up for the current uh, work situation that everybody <laughs> finds himself in. Yeah. And uh, I bounce around and do a little bit of everything right now. So uh, oh, wow. there you go. That's a, that's a pretty impressive um, list of credentials there, Tom. And I, and I didn't realize that you are uh, you know, so heavily involved in, in modern stuff like the, the Aquaman and Shazam that you've just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, you must have been a fairly uh, young man then, I suppose, when you were working on Phantom 2040. Yes, it was. I was in my mid-20s. It was my first art director job. It was actually, there was an interesting split in my career. At the time, I had just, I'd done quite a bit of set design for commercials. And I did uh, a restaurant design in Beverly Hills that was themed after Architects, which I will talk a little bit about how that connected to the Phantom. And from there, I went on an interview to be a draftsman, which was only a three-week gig on the film Stargate. And I was going to work directly with Patrick Tartopoulos, who was the production designer. And my job for three weeks was going to be doing the drafting work on the spaceship pyramid that lands on the pyramid in the film. It was going to last less than a month. Simultaneous to that, uh, Paul Lassane, who was a friend of my roommate in college, who is known for being a matte painter through Disney days back on glass. Uh, he was the production designer on Prince of Egypt when DreamWorks opened their animation department. He introduced me to David Corbett, who was developing Phantom at Hearst. And so I got offered an art director job and that job would have been three years. So I had three weeks of work or three years of work. And so <laughs> I took the three years, I walked away from film per se and went into television animation. Mm. And so that's kind of how I got connected to the phantom series and Mm. it was i was green i was young i had never done an art directing position at all uh david was attracted to the fact that i knew sid mead there was a lot of a sid mead influence and that as an industrial designer i was trained in concept design and that's he wanted somebody outside of animation who specifically was product and transportation savvy to design because there was a huge amount of assets to design for the phantom yeah, yeah, especially like um, like the the buildings, the the vehicles, and, and and all that. It was just it was mind-boggling as a oh, I would have been twelve, thirteen, or, or something at the stage. Um, now, did you know of the Phantom? Or did you ever read the Phantom uh, previously? Or I did. I actually have a big little book that my mom had from the nineteen thirties or forties that uh, I guess today would be worth a good amount. They're really small. They're, they're mm. like this big. They're like, in, you know, four inches by four inches, and they're very thick. And I had mm. read that over and over, and I had known the comic as a child. So when I was brought in, and they had taken him 23 generations into the future, and they used Blade Runner, which is every industrial designer, that's kind of the you – go you go to industrial design school, like the first week you, you would watch Akira – and you'd watch Blade Runner, and you were really bathed in creating an entire world, like you said, everything from the city to the vehicles to the fashion design, everything, and taking this great character, which really hadn't been touched. Uh, the Billy Zane movie had, was coming up a few years after this. Nobody had really, you know, it had fallen off everybody's radar, and this was before superhero films were as popular as they were today, but yes, I was familiar with The Phantom. Awesome. So did you read the strips in the newspaper or? Yes, we had them in the newspaper and then uh, I had the big little book and then 
I want to say I had a couple comic books as well. But as a kid, I wasn't a huge comic book kid, but I was a big, big little book kid. And so mm -hmm. I used to sneak my mom's books into my collection and then she'd move them back. So, <laughs> and, and you're right, that would be worth something today. Um, oh, yeah. Did that have the, uh, the Wilson McCoy uh, illustrations throughout it? I'd have to go look and read the, uh, read the credits to see specifically who they had. But it was from, I, I want to say it was 1937 is the copyright on it. I could run upstairs and grab it, <laughs> but uh, yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, you Oh, I was, um, yeah, I was just going to say, if it's 1937, it's probably, it might be the second one, I think it might be, because I think the first one was 36. Um, okay. Cool. So, um, I guess, I guess, uh, let's, let's discuss what's around you. Um, for those who are on YouTube and you're going to be able to see, um, you know, Tom, when he, when he speaks, you've got two monitors in the background and you've got a beautiful um, uh, concept um Oh, well, a movie poster, I guess, is be lack of a better word. Sure. Um, do you just want to explain a, a bit about your surroundings? Sure. Well, I'm in, I'm in my bunker, my basement studio. <laughs> this is where I do all my work. Uh, like I said earlier, I primarily, primarily do 3D design work, though I do get clients who want traditional sketching. I was the last generation at Art Center that we had no computer. So I'm traditionally trained in gouache painting, uh, sketching, so I can do everything by hand, but I am self-trained for 28 years now in 3D. So in my basement studio, I do all my 3D logos for movie posters and whatnot. Behind me, I have three computers, two behind me and one that I'm facing. And the poster was a concept piece that we did to uh, promote the show. It was never used. They spent a good amount of money on it. I actually got mm. one of my old roommates from Art Center, William Daly, who's worked in television animation. He did huge amounts of work all the way back on Beauty and the Beast and oh, wow. highly talented guy. I've known him since Detroit. And so I did the, the sketch or I did the layout for the poster and he painted it and yeah. they never used it. And when Hearst Animation Productions closed their, their offices in Los Angeles, the then producer basically gave me the poster and that was the one original big piece that I got when I left. And then on the mm. two monitors, you'll see the logo, which I also designed for the show, as well as that is one of the, uh, we had these promo folders and I was looking for it before the show and the promo folder would have color Xeroxes. It would have a little bit of a story description inside and probably 10 pages of the first episode. And I designed that folder which was really nice it was die cut it had the ghost wood that would go over the top of the futuristic city which you can see there and so all the layout was done by me and then the paintings on those were done by my late my background painting team on the phantom so the guys who actually painted the backgrounds for the show are the guys who painted that and mm. at the time we brought in another art center graduate thomas uh, Thomas Kim and he did all our graphics work so he helped translate my logo design behind me which was all done by hand into Illustrator at the time and I think the Macs back then were like the 2SE it was a long time ago uh, I got because I didn't get a lot of the original work we scanned so much of my original work onto these Sequest drives that were huge and about a decade ago, I was working at a company that had this giant stack with every possible way to connect it in. 
And I brought in this stack of Cyquest drives and we extracted stuff that was from the 90s. And this was, wow. you know, in the mid 2000s. And that's how I got all my Phantom stuff. And then I up it. And so pretty much everything I scanned is on my blog. It's on my Instagram. So you can have access to huge amounts of Phantom artwork. Now, the stuff that I did is I would do the pencil drawings and then it would go to the prop department and then they would just ink over the tops. The actual finals were inked single line width artwork done by the gentlemen who were uh, in the prop department. But behind me, what you're seeing on my screens are, are two, two of my favorite pieces and then obviously the big poster that has sat in my studio ever since it was finished. So, Yeah, that poster is amazing. It seems to me that... Um yeah, that that the yeah, poster is just incredible. It's a shame it never did get used. Um, it, I agree. it seems to me that um, twenty forty must still have a pretty special place in your heart, uh, Tom. The amount of um, digging to get these pieces back, and and you, you're saying you're putting it on your Instagram and your and your blog, even though it's more than half your lifetime ago. It's obviously something that's still pretty dear to you. It's very dear to me. I mean, a lot of it is is when I look back at it, it's one of the best jobs I ever had. Uh, being young and really excited about design it was a dream job i mean i basically all they had when i came in paul Lassain had done some beautiful paintings that were in in the style of sid mead for the environment they had hired peter chung for two weeks and he created about 10 pages of style sheets on the seven main characters and that's it that's all they had and so when i came in they didn't have they didn't know what the theme of the of the world these characters lived in was going to be. They didn't have color schemes. They didn't have a design sense. And as a conceptual designer, one of the main things I did when I came in was to take Peter Chung's characters, which you measure a character by the number of heads it is. Most characters are between seven and nine heads tall. And he created these extremely thin, tall, gaunt characters like Klimt. And they were like 12 to 15 heads tall. And they were super tall. I always use the analogy as if you watch a CinemaScope movie on TV and they squish it. Everybody mm-hmm. looks super tall and thin. And so the background department were creating these regular rooms. And I came in and said, these characters need to live in a tall and thin world. Everything in this world, the doorways should be like mail slots. You know, everything should match because... The characters were established. Peter Chung, obviously, he was the superstar. They brought him in after Eon Flux. He was a contractor and he worked somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of two to three weeks. But he designed the look of the characters, which then I built a world around them. Mm-hmm. And then I came up with the color choices. For example, all the good environments were warm colors. All the evil in- environments were cool colors. So you know immediately whether the character came up or whether the environment, whether it was good or evil. I had worked Mm -hmm. on a restaurant where I became very familiar with Art Nouveau and Frank Lloyd Wright. And these were much of the influences, specifically Art Nouveau was the overall look that we added to the show. And that's something I will show you in some pieces that the original guys who, who were designing the biots, the robots in the show, they were like robots in every other show. It was basically the leg was a cylinder with nernies all over it, all of Star Wars. We had seen that in Transformers and everything else. I came in and really re-evaluated the look of the robots and created these muscular metal shapes that were interlocking wrapped Art Nouveau sculpture shapes, 
which was a completely different approach. And that all came from my understanding of how Art Nouveau works. And I applied that as an overlay to this world. And then we just stretched it. And one of the tricks we used to do is when people would sketch their characters, they'd be too short. We had a trick where as it was Xeroxing, I would move it across the Xerox pad and it would stretch them. And I'd say, draw it again. Cause they were, they just didn't fit. We wanted everything to come back to that original look that Peter had in his characters. And so coming in, uh, it was a, it was a massive task. It was coming up with a, with a visual story Bible, uh, color schemes and shape language. And another huge piece that we can talk about a little bit is the technology of having the city above the other city and what technology they used. And at the time, everybody was using, you know, ray guns and ways to make these things float via magnets. And I chose to use fan power because as an industrial designer, I'm like, well, that's realistic. We could do it. And as I fast forward and I look at movies like Avatar or anything else and everything's fan power now, and they actually are building motorcycles and hovercrafts using fans because we don't have magnetic levitation systems. It's kind of interesting to see that. I mean, I created 45 to 50 vehicles all based on using fans. And here we are 25 years. So as a futurist to see that I kind of picked that right. And when I look at Phantom, it's like, yeah, okay, I, I get it. And th that was kind of fun. But being as young as I was, there's nothing in my career has really touched that. And I'm still great friends with a lot of people who are on the show. And some of them have gone uh, extremely far in the animation world. And uh, a couple of people have become actors. A lot of them are writers, but have a, have a great regard, not only for the show, but for the opportunity they gave me through uh, the Hearst Corporation. They own a lot of stuff. And I always bug, there's a guy in uh, New York, Frank Caruso, and every once in a while I'll bug him because he was the direct connection to us because they own Popeye, Betty Boop, and Beetle Bailey, and, and so many great properties. Yeah. That it's, mm. we got to get some of those things out. So. <laughs> oh, totally. Um, we've, on, several times on the podcast, we've always mentioned that they've, you know, obviously we're fan fans, but, you know, they've got a great array of, of characters and it's a shame they they haven't really monopolized currently with the with the superhero trend um, correct mm, so and, and the phantom will be perfect for it so um yeah well they uh like i said uh when we were talking off the air is that i did come in contact with a guy who pre presented a script uh just about 10 years ago and so there are a lot of people who want to resurrect the property and bring it back and every mm. once in a while you'll hear little rumblings and especially now because it's using whether it's a graphic novel or a comic book is that there's such a wealth of amazingly good writing. Yeah. And it seems that they've skipped over the Phantom partially maybe because it's not part of the big Marvel or DC universe. It's an yeah. independent, it's its own animal and it's old. It goes back really, really far. And to me, it's, it, they should definitely leverage that property. They, they have a lot, they have a lot to do with it. Like you said, there's a huge fan base. I'm on the Phantom 2040 uh, group on Facebook and in South America and Australia, I would say in those two areas, it is massive. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is huge. So. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, like I was saying, um, you know, a lot of my friends and all that, uh, we all watched it, um, you know, when it, when it was out on TV in Australia, um, 
Uh, I know like the toys too, Jermaine. Yeah, a lot I've of uh, Final Twenty Forty toys that came out. Um, one of my prized possessions, actually, over here, are actually these um, uh, little PVC um, figurines. I've only managed to pick up uh, DVL and the Phantom. Uh, these are from the Germany. Um, oh, nice. But, I, uh, I can yeah. talk to you about the toy line, too, if you'd like. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll definitely get onto that as well. But, um, yeah, these are some of my, my favourite pieces in my collection. Um, Those are outstanding. So with this, they came with um, uh, Garat, Garan, um, and then I think there was Rebecca Madison as well. Uh, okay. Five or six in that line. Uh, very hard to get a hold of. I've only seen sure. a couple of these um, floating around in eBay in the last 20 years or so. Um, but, yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a great line. Um, I know recently the – would have been probably maybe five, ten years ago, uh, season one came out on DVD. Okay. Um, we released season two on DVD, and there's only a few – there's only a few, uh, whether it's on YouTube or we've even got season two on our Patreon page. But a lot of people haven't seen season two or they haven't seen it recently and all that because it's just not available. It's not out. It hasn't been released on DVD or anything. So, um, yeah, there's definitely sure. a fan base. Oh, yeah. It, well, you know, it's like everything else. Is if You get Netflix to pick it up. It's like Cobra Kai. Is all of a sudden, it's like oh, yeah. massive. Yeah, is yeah, yeah. You, you get one of the large distributors because they want content. There's yeah. there's a huge fan base. Something like that picks it up. All of a sudden, it's gonna it's gonna go like wildfire. Yeah, in my well, opinion. On the podcast, we've said probably oh, probably a million times. All our listeners are probably sick and tired of us talking about it, but we think Netflix would be the best best choice because when you've uh, like what you did in the show, when um, you've had flashbacks of past phantoms and. You know, yeah, you, you, sure. you had the twenty-second Phantom um, in various episodes. You had the twenty-first Phantom. You had episodes with the cyber, uh, with the uh, with the Sky Band and and stuff like that as well. And that's oh, yeah. the beauty of something like Netflix is where you, you know you can really flesh out all generations. Correct. Oh yeah, it would be wonderful. I. I would hope they would do something like that. It's it's mm. a great property, in my opinion. You know, I it was like I said, it was probably uh, the job I look back on and and I loved the most. So, been thinking about a lot, thinking about it a lot coming up to this podcast for sure. Yeah. Digging through <laughs> digging through all my stuff, looking at the scripts, and realizing all the talent, the voice talent. You're like, wow, we had a lot of good voice talent on that. So, yeah, that and and. Um just before the show, Jermaine asked about the notes that I put at the bottom of the run sheet. And that was certainly one of the things that I was, um, when I was looking you know, again, researching for today, for, for this morning, um, just go to go through IMDB and the voice talent that was, that was attached to it. You know, almost everybody's gone on to bigger and better things. And oh, yeah. um, it seems to have been the, the whole series. And from what you're saying about the creative team behind the camera as well, um, the, it seems to have been a launching point for quite a lot of, um, a lot of people. Yes, yes. Not just on-screen talent, but off-screen. Um, mm. Production assistants are now executive producers at Cartoon Network, I know. Oh, wow. uh, and they've been working in animation for 30 years now. And they all start, I mean, some of them started as runners there. Mm. And uh, I know uh, one girl in particular who was a runner, and she's now an executive producer at Cartoon Network, worked on Powerpuff Girls, and, and just Phantom really launched a lot of people. 
And the gentleman, uh, David Corbett, who it was his concept, uh, him and his wife basically brought the Phantom to life. They approached uh, the Hearst Corporation and they did uh, Prince Valiant first. They're still in animation and he's done all the uh, My Little Pony stuff, which is a massive property. Mm. And so he's still involved in telev television animation. Uh, the main people who created the story Bible, uh, Gar and Judy Reeves Stevens, they're science fiction writers and they write to this day. They worked on Babylon 5, all the Star Treks, they write novels. And they're the ones who really set up the tech world that you see in the Phantom. And then we brought in, they brought in guest writers who would write various shows, but ultimately season one and the whole concept itself was fleshed out by that writing couple. And mm. they, yeah, I've got them connected on my Twitter and lots of very active people. But yeah, I mean, we all knew, you know, Mark Hamill from, you know, what sci-fi person doesn't know Mark Hamill, yeah. but then Scott yeah. Valentine like was, who is he? Oh, that's right. He was on the, you know, he was on that show with Michael J. Fox. And, but when you look through everybody in there, it's like, yeah, Graft is Ron Perlman, who's, I mean, massive career. And so, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing where it went. And uh, one interesting story I'd love to tell you is that our production went through the Northridge quake in 1993 in Los Angeles. And our office was directly affected. And there was a moment when we were literally running across Ventura Boulevard myself and I was grabbing production paintings oh, wow. painted in France to save the show because wow. our building was being condemned. And, and David was like, if we don't get all the assets, we're all out of work. <laughs> and so we just raided the building. Uh, CBS <laughs> Studios was behind us and somebody knew somebody in the Seinfeld show. And we got a scissor lift that took us up to the third floor and we ran in and we were just throwing piles of layouts from France and Canada you know, like almost into the front end of a, of a, you know, a loader that they then took down and then we sorted them and we moved to uh, Santa Monica from Studio City, sorted everything out, saved everything. We didn't even have to really repaint some. There was a couple of tire treads and they were done in, uh, they were done in cell vinyl. So we were able to kind of clean them off, but we saved the show. And that Northridge quake was massive in 93 and it, uh, our building was a mid-century modern cantilevered building, and it blasted all the glass into the production. So when we came in in the morning, the cement floors were cracked 8 to 10 inches. Uh, there was knife mm. shards of glass in my chair, other chairs. Wow. And so the Northridge Quake was an interesting piece of the history of the Phantom Show, and we made it through. And then they just moved us over to Santa Monica where they had been doing television shows. So they gave us a section of that, and then we finished up the show from there. But uh, it's an interesting facing a natural disaster mm. on a television show and saving it because our budget was one-third of the Batman and the Warner Brothers shows. Batman, Superman, they were doing their shows for about seven fifty to a million an episode. We were doing ours for two seventy five an episode in $1993. Mm. And yeah. so we had to develop a way to produce it and to produce a good product for such a small amount of money in the animation world. And this was pre-computers. that We were one of the first shows to use 3D, for example, in our opening sequence. But, uh, and then we ended up doing all the ink and paint uh, uh, in the computer very, mm. very early on. So, mm. But interesting little side piece of history on the show. Yeah. yeah that's um, fascinating. Yeah, it's very fascinating. And it's kind of ironic in the sense that the show was about 
um, you know, was was with the natural disasters and the man-made disasters and and stuff sure. like that as well. So it kind of fits fits very very well oh, together. Yeah. Um, so you just made mention about your the process with um, uh, you know, obviously starting off stuff with pencil and then going into the 3D and all that. A lot of a lot of um, uh, a lot of listeners that we have are, are art collectors as well. So I was curious if you could just spend a bit of time talking about uh, your process and animator cells and did you do it with markers and what was done digitally and sure and, and stuff like that. Well, I'm, I'm a traditionally trained industrial designer, so we use markers. And uh, so I came up with all the, the colors. What I would do is I would hand sketch the characters, then they would go to, uh, they would be hand inked by the prop and character departments. So they would help do turnarounds and whatnot. And then we would get a Xerox of that. And then I would just do marker comps over it. And then once they were picked, they would be scanned into the computer. We did bring somebody in and they did about five or six test true cell vinyl cell paintings to see how it would look. Because like I said, in 1993, we had both options to do it either digitally or to do it traditional. And all the animation finishing was done in Seoul, Korea. Uh, we had all the background paintings were done in the south of France in Angoulême. All the layout was done in Canada and we did all the design in the States. And so I had to visit uh, Canada. I had to visit Paris and south of France. And I had to visit uh, Korea to oversee. And they eventually went with, with an ink and paint system, which back then I believe was on an SGI. They had a computer like the size of a refrigerator back then. And so they did all digital. So there, there does exist cells, um, not very many. Um, mm. I don't have them. You know, I have pictures of them, but there really are only a few. The background paintings were all traditionally painted, all of them. Yeah. They, were, they were painted on cold press illustration board. They were scanned traditionally. And all those are wherever Hearst, because the Hearst offices in Los Angeles were closed as well as animation. They closed everything. So somewhere in New York City at William Randolph Hearst's in, in their archives, they have all the original background paintings, which are real traditional. They were painted with uh, cell vinyl and uh, none of them were digital. The opening title sequence was designed by me and then it was done by uh, Anatel, Say Young Animation in Korea, and it was done on an SGI. But other than, so all my originals, typical car design guys, we work on vellum. And I used colored pencils. So I sketched everything out and then it was all inked. And then the inking is what became the final artwork for the character turnarounds and whatnot. But I had a huge pile of original, you know, tracing paper and vellum and whatnot. And it was all done in pencil. Mm -hmm. And then all my color work was done uh, with marker. And I did a few background paintings, but I really left that to, to the painting department. We had really really talented painters so it was mm. we had one woman who had worked on uh, Bambi and she was in her 60s and so she was a traditional old school had painted you know a long time ago I was the young kid when I came in everybody was like this guy doesn't you know I'd never worked in TV animation uh, I was just a I was green and you know so so I got a little bit of flack for that but uh, they liked as an industrial designer, the way I approached it is that as industrial designers, part of the design process isn't just the design. It's mm. I've got 275K and I have to design an entire show's props, backgrounds, and 
make sure the storyboard is done every 10 days. Because once yeah. we're in production, it's fast paced. And so I created systems to help the team. And mm -hmm. so developing those systems is what I use to this day when I work with teams. So yeah. that was a huge piece of stuff that mm -hmm. you don't see even on the screen, but how do I get everybody doing fisheye drawing? Well, I got everybody's ship curves is what in car design, we don't use straight edges, we use ship curves, which are long French curves. And that's, and I taught everybody curvilinear perspective, which I actually learned in college, which was based on MC Escher's work. And so all the backgrounds have this kind of fisheye feel and they're tall and thin to match the characters. But I had to teach the storyboard guys how to, how to do fisheye. I built these little grids that they could slide underneath the storyboard frames. I built big grids that we sent off to Korea, to France, to Canada. Uh, when the drawings would come back, I would correct them with um, the French curves and I would send a couple extras to the team. And then once they learned it, a lot of art directing was doing that. I have one really fun comment to say about being an art director. And I didn't know this because I was green is when I went to Korea, I brought all my art supplies and they brought me into the room and I'm, you know, I'm an American. I don't speak Korean. And so via the translator, he said, sit down and say whatever you want to do. And I'm like, well, I pulled out my painting bridge and I pulled out, I said, can I get some water and paint? And everybody was looking at me going, what? <laughs> like an art director who actually does art. <laughs> they were blown away because everybody was this. Yeah. And I'm like, that's the only way they're going to learn. So I taught them how yeah. I used a bridge, which I was taught by Paula Sane and uh, how we use the ship curve. I taught them the whole theory of why we see fisheye. And it really, really helped because I want to say by the time I got back, the quality of the paintings and the layouts from Korea, there was this massive jump. And the owner of the company eventually hired me and I worked for him directly for uh, about a year. And, was because as an art director, I sat and I actually did the art. I could, I could understand how to create the machine that we needed to build the widget, but I actually sat down on the assembly line and got my hands dirty. Yeah. And they mm. love that. And I have a dual credit as a concept designer slash art director. So I did all the concept work. And when I couldn't do it at work, I could hire myself out freelance. We were running out of time. And I said, well, do you want to hire me as a freelancer to do background layout? So I actually did background layout on the weekends, got paid as a contractor for that. And then during my regular five-day business week, I was art director, conceptual designer. So when I wasn't art directing somebody, I was designing props and vehicles and cars. And so I did a massive amount of stuff and didn't touch the original Peter Chung characters because those, we wanted to preserve absolute perfection with those. That was the key, build a world around them. So everything matched his characters. But once they were all designed and matched, then it was my job to make sure that uh, the continuity and that the look remained at the quality that they wanted at the budget that we had. Yeah. Um, and that was, um, that was something I wanted to comment on is um, just how effective that was done. And, and before we sat down today, I didn't under probably understand how in, uh, influential you were, I guess, in that process. But um, when you first see the stills or the, the, the front cover of the DVD and that sort of thing, the thing that stands out is how elongated and, and as you've said, thin and tall the characters are. And I think um, that is probably, you know, it's unusual. It might be a little bit off-putting for people at, at uh, sure. early stages. But within half an episode, because the world that you've created around them all fits, um, right. you stop noticing it and you're just enjoying Correct. the story. So uh, yeah. it was really important um, and, and obviously really uh, in-depth process, but uh, certainly effective. Yes, it, it had to be. Otherwise, they would have. 
When they put them in a regular room with a regular rectangular door, they looked really odd. <laughs> and so I'm like, I just squeeze that down, stretch it up, tall mm. and thin. It was, I mean, it was like the mantra for two years walking around. It's got to be taller. It's got to be thinner. Change <laughs> the proportion. Everything is like that. And we learned that little trick on the Xerox machine. I would take it. I'd sometimes go sideways, sometimes up and down. And they'd be like, oh, I got it. And then they would just resketch it. So, mm. but that's a so great point that you make. You, you, you don't see it anymore because yeah. that was our goal was to immerse you in this room that then when you went back and looked at regular TV, everybody looked kind of squat. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, it's like, what's wrong with everything else? <laughs> yeah. yeah, if only it was that easy to do that to us as well in real life. <laughs> well, it, 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 sure, exactly. these days just um, proportionally stretch the, the picture out rather than the, the trick with the Xerox machine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so so you, you said before, um, well, first of all, it must have been a huge thrill as a, as a, as a mid-20-year-old going to France, Canada, and, and Korea as part of your job unbelievably cool you know like some americans i hadn't stepped foot off u.s soil i'd lived in vancouver as a child but i'd never gone anywhere else and seoul korea is not a tourist place at all so uh but it is if you're not doing tv animation in japan you're doing it in korea yeah. and the studio that we worked in which was say young anatel they did the simpsons and uh, quite a few shows in the 90s so they had a great reputation a lot of work going through there and it was a whirlwind. When we went there, we had hired an animator who was the animator on Eon Flux. He had worked with Peter Chung. And he came with me. And at that time, number one is I didn't realize that there's quite a tension between the Korean and the Japanese people. Yeah. We got stopped in customs because I was with him. And they gave him a really hard time. But once we got in, we were in. And uh, I did one big trip there that was almost a month long. And it was really oh, wow. just helping their team that were working on episode one. And at the time it was really the pilot, yeah. which became, because episode one and two are the pilot. They broke it into two. So uh, what show 101 and 102, you put them together, that was the pilot. And they were making that. And so I had to deal with all the animation work that was being done there. And then they sent me to France where they were doing all the, the rough animation. Then they, or excuse me, to Canada. And then they sent me to the South of France where they were doing the painting. And so there was this roundabout that I had to do. And then as all the work came to America, I had to then art direct it from there. So I made at least one trip to each of those countries and then just had a lot of conversation. And this was, you know, this was before, uh, you know, email, anything. And so it was pretty much on the phone and holding artwork in front of me and doing our best to try to communicate. Uh, whereas today it would be much, much, much easier today to do something mm -hmm. like that. But visiting the countries as a young man was awesome. I mean, it was great. It was, <laughs> as I look back on it, it, it truly is, it, it was an amazing experience. And it was a blessing to have that so young in my career. Mm -hmm. uh, I was extremely empowered, which, which is very rare. Uh, the entertainment industry in general is really locked down and they compartmentalize you. I mean, you even see this with actors. We always have a joke about Liam Neeson is I'm like, he's probably just begging to do a romantic comedy because they're like, okay, you're, you're this old, you know, you, you used to be in the CIA or, you know, whatever three letter division <laughs> and somebody in your family, something happened to him. And he's like, oh, really? I've never done that before. So <laughs> we, the entire industry really compresses you into a little tiny group. So if you do superheroes, that's all you'll ever do. 
Yeah. And coming into this show, as I was given a lot of range, it was pretty much just, we need a world for these guys. And mm -hmm. he loved Sid Mead and the, and the style that he had, but Sid Mead's style was all sharp edge, triangular shapes. And that's where I brought Art Nouveau in. And the stretching was when I looked at Peter Chung's stuff and I had seen me on Flux. I'm like, well, that just reminds me of Cinemascope. And so I went and I watched some TV shows and I'm like, that's it, is they have to live in that world. And mm -hmm. so I, I had an advantage. I mean, I designed all the vehicles. I designed the whole robot line. I designed the color schemes. And I was able to art direct other team, team members into doing these things. I have yet to have anything of that level in my career ever. I mean, that was, that was wonderful. And it, it was short-lived. I tried when Hearst closed, I tried to get an art director job at Disney. They were working on gargoyles. Disney was very difficult. I ended up, ended up working for two different divisions, but really, really hard to get into Disney. And after that show, it just, it didn't work out. I worked on uh, Happily Ever After, Fairy Tales for Every Kid on HBO. Uh, I did prop design for that because some of the people who I had worked with at Phantom were working on that show and they brought me in. And mm -hmm. I worked also on the Gen 13 movie, which was J. Scott Campbell's movie that Disney bought and hid on a shelf. And that was great. That was taking his Gen 13 characters from Image Comics and they did a 90 minute film. And I did prop design and I did a mostly background layout. So uh, I worked with some good friends who also worked at Hearst. And, but animation wise, kind of moved away from that. It got into new media because I got into 3D. I got into new media really quickly, worked at Disney Interactive. And then I was an Imagineer and I worked on and off as an Imagineer from 98 to 2019. I have stuff that just went into the park in Los, out in California and Los Angeles area. So little bits and pieces, but I have a love for animation. Uh, I apply for art director jobs here and there, but when I realized, well, that was 27 years ago, you know, mm -hmm. and they kind of mm -hmm. want to see the guy who's done something last week. It's, yeah. It's just, it is what it is, but it was, it was one of the most incredible opportunities I've had. Yeah. You've um, touched on the Hearst Corporation there a couple of times. Yes. Um, what, what was, um, what was that like to work for them? Is it, cause they're not obviously not a traditional or they're not a powerhouse in the, um, or, or weren't um, in the industry. Um, was that perhaps why you were able to have a little bit more freedom is that they were a, a new or a, a smaller company and all the rest of it. Um, what was it like working for them? That's a great question. I mean, you know, they, they're known for publishing in the newspapers and magazines from New York City that they have. Um, however, because they own King Feature Syndicate, uh, Frank Caruso, who was the liaison, who's actually still there, um, they have such a love for their properties. They know Popeye and Beetle Bailey and Prince Valiant and The Phantom. Mm -hmm. And we worked on Flash Gordon after The Phantom, which they did just one season of that. They love comics. They love artwork. Uh, but because they weren't a powerhouse of entertainment, so to speak, that that's a really good insight. You know, I, I think that you might be right as to why they gave me that. Ultimately, the kudos would go to David Corbett, who hired me, is that, I mean, when you're a good producer, your job is to empower everybody. The writer, you write it. I want you to write it. You can mm. give them suggestions, but you let the writers write. You let the art directors art direct. You let the painters paint. And that's something that as a design director, I've always done is that if I bring somebody in and he's really, a lot of times people ask me about a logo I did. And I'm like, well, one of the best logo designers in the world gave me the vector file and I just made it three dimensional. 
But without working with somebody who is empowered in what they do, I can't then add to it because I'm, in, I'm trained in advanced surfacing. That's something you see in the biots with the very three-dimensional interwrapping mm -hmm. shapes. It's not just a cylinder for a leg. I mean, it was complicated. A lot mm -hmm. of French curve work to design that. That was all because I was empowered to do that directly locally by David Corbett. But David was given that power by Hearst in New York City. So mm -hmm. I would say that if Hearst didn't give him that power, I would have been doing little beer cans, cylinder limbs, and they would have been strong arming me. And I've had logos for films that are extremely strong arm. They just come in and literally just say, they hold up a picture and they say, you want to take this and that vector and make it. And they nitpick it to the end. And other ones back off and just kind of say, Hey, we want to make it glass or metal and do something cool. When I did X-Men two, he said, you got three days go. I did 212 <laughs> logos, wow. full color, and we printed it out as a book and went thunk right on my boss's desk. And oddly enough, they picked like number six in the book. But I mean, it was like they had never had anybody give them that much. He printed up bunches of copies so that when he went and did the next superhero film and wanted X-Men wise, he would just hand it to the client and just say, this is the kind of range we can give you hundreds, yeah, yeah. hundreds of looks. And so... I have had that range in prior careers. Uh, the closest would be when I was an Imagineer. I was given huge amounts of authority. I was an art director also in Disney Interactive where we built the entire park in 3D. I was given a huge amount of authority, but you don't get that a lot. And I always talk about that when people hire you as a designer, they can hire this part of your body, your wrist, or they can hire this. Yeah, and yeah. Hearst, you know, and it's not always an either or. Hearst got them both because I helped develop and come up with not only the visuals, but how it's going to be built. And then I actually drew and designed a huge portion of the assets for the show. And bar none, no other client has given me that. And so not only did I love the show, but you know, when, when you're given that kind of creative freedom, you kind of see what you're made of and what you can actually mm -hmm. do. And so uh, I would I love to get another, enjoyed. you know, yeah. my career ain't done now. I would love to get another, another opportunity like that uh, to be able to, really use all of me you know mm -hmm. and that they they certainly did so long story short to answer your question it was it was this fish stinks from the head down it was the people who were over me had my executive producer not given me authority i wouldn't have it had the people in new york not let him do what he does it wouldn't have happened and it's a con conglomeration of a lot of talented people and at the end of the day i mean they produced a great product in my opinion especially for mm -hmm. when you realize you know what if we were given the money that warner had we had three times yeah. the budget. Yeah. We might it have got more than two seasons as well. That's right. Well, we, I concepted out 52 episodes. Oh, so wow. they yeah. didn't all hit the screen because I did 26 and 26. I did concepts for 52 shows and they must have cut it short. So, and then we jumped over and then Flash Gordon, I think, did six or 12. And there were toy lines that came out for Flash, but the toy line for Phantom stalled i actually had a friend who i went to art center with and traditionally when mattel makes toys they grab the he-man the big bulky guy and they just spray paint them and they re-sculpt these tall thin gaunt characters for us and so the phantom was the actual proportions of the phantom oh wow. and we had prototypes but they never made them Mm. Oh, so, so um okay so could we talk a little bit more uh there's a couple of things that yeah. I just want to talk about there. Um, Every time Tom talks, I've got about four questions. To yeah. <laughs> um, 
So, first of all, let's talk about the toy line, and then I want to talk yeah. about the, the 52 episodes. Um, so, so we almost had a toy line with, um, as you said, it was a prototype. Uh, could you expand on that for us, please, Tom? Sure. Well, in 1993, you could not sell an animated show without a tie-in to a toy line. Mm. It was that simple. If you didn't have toys, you couldn't sell it. And they eventually sold the show here in the States to ABC. That's a big, that's one of the big three. You know, that was before cable had done what it has done now. And you get a show on ABC, you have to have a toy line. And so we were developing the Mattel toys concurrent with the pilot. And sometime during that production, the toy line didn't happen. And that may be possibly why they didn't finish all the episodes because they didn't order the rest. Um, we did storyboards and I did props for 52 shows. I mean, it was, that's when I learned it was 26 per year because 52 weeks in a year, they show 26 and then they show them again for reruns and then yeah. the next year. And so 26 was a full year of shows. And so we did two full seasons. And then I almost want to say we did a couple extras. So there might've been 62. I'd have to pull out. I have all the scripts. I'd have, oh, to, wow. I'd have to dig deep to find them all. But I have copies of all the scripts and I did prop, uh, props for all of them. They just stopped airing it at a certain point. And so mm -hmm. the Phantom toy line might be why, oddly enough, the next show I worked on and, and did art direction for with uh, Flash Gordon, the new adventures of Flash Gordon, they did get a toy line. The toys did come out, but the show really, I think I saw it on, I think it's on Amazon and it had like six episodes possibly something like that. And uh, that, was a, that was a really fun development project because I got to bring in a good friend of mine, Nick Pugh, who's one of the premier concept designers in the industry. He does vehicles. He did the vehicle for Logan, the, uh, uh, the limo. He, he's, he's one of the best concept designers I've ever worked with in my life. And he came in and did the characters. And he did them on these giant 20-inch by 40-inch huge vellum sheets where he used fabric and whatnot to sell the ideas. And they went right in David Corbett's office. I mean, they were, and that was the project we had right after the Phantom. And so we were doing Phantom production and I was doing pre-production concept design on Flash Gordon because we saw that Phantom was ending. And then there was some shakeup at the studios. David and his wife left. We got somebody else from New York and they knocked the staff way down and, it was pretty much the work was going to run out. And that's when I had to leave. Uh, I wasn't per se laid off. It's just the work was going away. And they were like, you know, we're just not going to have anything for you in a month. So it's up to you when you want to go. And that's mm -hmm. when I started getting into real-time video gaming. And that was right around 1995. And, I, okay. and we were over in uh, Santa Monica by uh, UCLA. And that's where we had moved since that earthquake I mentioned to you. Yeah. So... I know I might be stretching your memory a little bit, but is there, sure. is there, um, have, could you give us a bit of insight on what maybe some episodes that we missed out on or like the, was the direction the same and it was just some filler episodes between the key elements of the story? It was or? not filler episodes. It was linear because they had the original people who did the architect for the story Bible had laid out an entire world. They anticipated and they really wanted this to be, you know, like matched at the time, Ken C. Mm -hmm. They wanted a ten-year show, so they had oh, wow. laid out where this was going to go, and so not filler. They just didn't finish it out, and so uh, 
it's nice to know that we have access to all the shows now because I haven't even seen all the shows. Uh, there was, there's interesting things in the entertainment industry. Like for example, is they, they compartmentalized the voice talent. I'd never met any of the voice talent. They did it late at night off site. So yeah. you, you know, when I worked at Disney, all the talent would walk through and they go, Hey, here you're working at this and you get to meet great people. Uh, not a single person who did voice talent. Did anybody on the production team ever meet? We were really isolated from that. And mm. we only met Peter Chung once. He was just toured through. He never spoke to any of us. He just walked through. They showed us when we had moved to Santa Monica. I mean, ultimately, his involvement with the show was designing the characters off-site, selling them to David Corbett. And then we just took it from there. So, mm. But we didn't get to meet any of those kind of people. So in regard, it what definitely wasn't filler, uh, but... Yeah, I'd have to see where the last show ended to see what they didn't play, for mm. sure. But uh, I did, mm. you know, I mean, I worked on storyboards. And even when I left, uh, like I said, they had about a month or so of work left. Um, they called me regularly, and I did contract work for them. I did background design. I did prop design. I even did some storyboards for some various title sequences and whatnot, because I had access, obviously, being the art yeah. director and concept designer. I knew the show. I was the guy to go to. And, but yeah, it just kind of petered off and kind of disappeared. So yeah. they closed, they closed offices in LA and it went away. Yeah. So most still, of us didn't think much of it. Yeah. It's still a bit of a disappointment. Um, would love to, yes. be able to say, love to be able to get like a, a, like a, a plot synopsis or, or, or even look at the original 52 episodes just to be able to kind of like see what we did miss out on and sure and and, and stuff like that um yeah when when, when you do dig them out uh please let us know <laughs> yeah if i find them i'll definitely i'll make some copies <laughs> yeah yeah no because that's yeah. just it's just like because i never knew i always just assumed you know it was the 35 episodes are you, sure. you kind of when you talk to um uh, people like yourself. Um, also, when we talked to Rick Hoberg, who was part of the Defenders of the Earth um, TV series as well, you kind of learn a little bit more about the process. And 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 he made mention about it being very separated as well. Um, yes. Uh, and so you kind of figure that well, there's probably stuff that we didn't see, but to um, oh yeah. yeah, 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 to be able to know that there's you know, like you said, possibly 60 odd episodes and, you know, we've made it, we've only seen maybe a half of those. Um, the sure. Yes. Oh yeah. And most of entertainment work, I mean, working as a Disney Imagineer, we created entire e-ticket attractions that were massive, like equal to like three Pirates of the Caribbean in size. We did one for France. We presented it and then it was put in a drawer the next day. And they mm -hmm. disappear. And then, and we had a team of 45 people. I was a chief show designer. We built the architectural model. We brought Michael Eisenberg in at the time, who was the CEO, presented it. And within 24 hours, project's over. He's like, I don't like it. It's gone. It, it's yeah. put in a drawer. And I remember once going into archives and it was like, oh my God, the amount of like, they have enough assets to build 10 parks that have yeah. never seen the light of day ever. And yeah. animation companies are the same. There is so much work that we don't see that they'll do a false start on a show and then they'll bag it. And then they'll do another one. And then you'll see whatever episodes they air, but you don't realize 
like you're saying, there's this huge history and a huge amount of work that got them to there. That, yeah. And for me, I, we did a bunch of work assuming it all was going to go on and then not all of it even went on. And so I don't even know if it was animated because we had this production cycle. All I know is I remember episode 52 and approving a storyboard. And that was, you know, we had some, some people leave and management, you know, when your executive producer and your senior producer leave the company, that causes quite a shakeup because they're the ones who, who founded the company. They did everything. They worked directly with Hearst. And for whatever reason it happened, which I don't even remember, all of a sudden there's all this new blood in there and it's, what are we doing? Well, it's really just kind of, pick up what we got. We'll finish it up. And that might've been why they just, you know, cut bait. No toys definitely affected the series. They needed the toys. Yeah. They had the video game. And then, uh, you know, then the Billy Zane film came out. We thought that was going to help it and nothing helped it. And it just, yeah. so yeah. too bad. Yeah. 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 Jermaine, do you collect much of the sorry, Jermaine, do you collect much of the Phantom Twenty Forty toys? I know, I know there's a, if I, I could I have find them, them, I would I would collect them. So yeah, it's um, yeah. I'm I'm a big collector. I'm fifty three, so I've got you know, I've got lots of G.I. Joe's, micronauts, I've got all the the stuff I had from the seventies. I had the mom that threw nothing away. So I've got all my original Star Wars, oh. Battlestar Galactica, mm -hmm. Buck Rogers, I got Micronauts, I got Planet of the Apes, Zira in package. And all the twelve-inch Joes from the '60s, and I've got like 450 GI Joes. So I've been a toy collector my whole life. Uh, I really got into comics when I was working on the Phantom. Uh, one of the guys, Brian Thompson, who was a production assistant, who's now a writer, was the one who introduced me to Image Comics. And this is right when Spawn, the Max, uh, Gen 13 were coming out, and I was like, they were just starting to use computers to color. And the quality level of the paper going from newsprint to glossy, I mean, it was, it was a major jump what Image yep. did. And that was right at the time. I mean, we had Samuel French Bookstore, which, which is this amazing film bookstore that was in the bottom of our three-story building. And across the street was the comic book shop. So we were right there in Studio City. I mean, CBS Lot was behind us as we went across the street and got tacos. You know, Michael Richards, Kramer was getting tacos in front of us. We were bathed in entertainment. This is the 90s. Everything was great. And comic books were really coming up. And like, I, like you said, I mean, I was young. I had a lot of authority they had given me. It was, it was a dream job. It was really wonderful. And, you know, we made it through the earthquake and then the shakeup at the company. And then just eventually it really bummed me out that I had to leave. And as the years went on, I look back at every art director job I've had. And that, that job was really a pinnacle. And it, it, it's tough for anybody to beat that. And, and, you know, the forces were right at that time. But mm. there's huge amounts. Every property you see, I have a lot of friends who do concept designs on film. The amount of stuff that's on the cutting room floor, it's like the 212 X-Men logos. They pick one. Most people are like, there's 211 yeah. other ones. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I've worked on films that I am under threat of death five, ten years later. I can't show the stuff I did for a poster, like mm -hmm. the posters mm -hmm. that were supposed to come out and that don't come out. I mean, that's all, all of the entertainment industry has this huge amount of wonderful creative assets. And comic yeah. book writers have it and animation guys and the toy. Some guy has the Phantom Toys. I don't know who it is, but somebody has because they had working prototypes. They had molds made. And they had Sean one who was like 15 heads tall. He was like, you know, he was like a skeleton <laughs> and his package was so tall compared to everybody else. It was awesome. Somebody got all that. They did yeah. a single run and, but 
not us, you know, and I, I, 27 years later, I haven't even heard of them. So I have no idea. Yeah. No, I it's haven't heard of, ball. I haven't heard of any prototypes or anything. So were they articulated figurines? Yes. Oh yeah. Oh wow. They were, they this... were, they were really, really cool. And this was, this was before 3d printing. So we yeah. got, we got to, uh, uh, tour the Mattel shop. We got to see there's, there's one woman who paints the eyes on every Barbie and oh, wow. she's like 70 and she's been doing it for 50 years and she's talking to you and looking over this way and dropping those eyelashes. Like you're like, Oh my God. Like just puts the new head on there and like bram, 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 next. Bram. And it was, and they were doing all the sculpts for the matchbox really big. And then they had this process of scanning it in and making it smaller. And it was really cool. So we saw that and then we saw the prototypes and then the show came out. And then I was, I was, deep in I was doing production pre-production on another show and then they were flying me around I was a busy boy and so it just well where are the toys oh well there's problems with it and then eventually the show went away but who knows how they were connected but toys yeah. that's why if you can come in with toys already think transformers they went the other way you know they had a toy line they created a animated show and now they've got you know they're doing film seven on it it's a huge so big that Hasbro has its own film company yeah so uh you know yeah now i know 2040 had the like the the guns and the um i can't find them in my room at the moment otherwise i would bring them out to show the blasters you. and the yeah, yeah yeah yeah. so there's those um i think there's six or seven on um they came on card and stuff like that but they were quite cheaply made but they're sure uh have you you've seen those i'm assuming i have seen those yeah uh, interesting story on the poster behind us with Sagan Cruz. You'll notice she's holding like a tricorder. Uh, this image, by the way, is on my blog. So you can, I have the sketch and zoom ins and yeah. all that. And so when we were presenting the original painting to uh, New York City, she had a gun and, you know, it was kind of aimed up. And even though it was almost 30 years ago, it was a kid's show. And they're like, well, the why does she have a gun? And we're like, well, she's the cop. She has a gun. Just like Phantom has two of them. Right. Mm. He's like, well, no, no, we can't do that. It's a kid's mm. show. Get rid of the, get rid of that. You know? And we're like, okay. All right. And he's like, Oh, and can you make, and, and he's, he's like, literally, can you make her breast bigger? And we all laughed. <laughs> and he was like deadpan. And the whole room got like, Whoa, he is serious. <laughs> so we put a tricorder in her hand and increased her cup size. So, so they hit her gun, but the Phantom carried two gun, and then he had that electric whip. Yeah, and that mm -hmm. was that was something as as well. But we also designed for all the flashback sequences, which went more sharp line, kind of like Star Wars, where I did pull out a straight edge, and everything was sharp sharp edges that everybody had seen before. So when we went in the past or when we went in the future. Uh, but what was really nice as a concept designer was working with science fiction writers. I mean, they were talking about nanotechnology before anybody yeah. knew what that stuff was. And this is 1993. I'm, I'm like, I remember going to their office and going, what does this mean? What is, cause they were extreme futurists as writers and yeah. the technology that was in the show as a concept guy was just so cool. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so everything down to the guns, the way the guns worked is, uh, is getting away not only from a traditional firearm that shoots bullets, but the shape of the gun and the mm. style and how it wrapped onto his, his hand and whatnot. So, so that was fun when you were talking about um, uh, the cop having her gun disappear, that still happens today. 
Um, oh yeah, Carl of course. He's doing a he's doing a, a card game of the Phantom. He had Diana with a machine gun that had to get changed to a normal pistol because the machine gun was too. Sure. Was too. Uh, and you you, you yeah. learn this. There's an entire department for television animation that all scripts go through. Yeah. And they basically clean them up of things like that. It's it's kind of like the rating system. But, you know, this just because it was a poster and it was a one-off, mm. nobody thought about it because the Phantom has two two firearms per se. Yeah. And she had it in the show. They just didn't want it on the poster. Mm. And mm. so we, we had to swap that out. But, yeah, that, that happens a lot. The other thing that was interesting was the original on the second show on uh, New Adventures of Flash Gordon, we learned about the number of fingers a character can have uh, because of, in Japan, having to do with the Yakuza, is you, the characters can have three and they can have five, they can have four. So Ming the Merciless, so we had to redesign a bunch of characters for that so that it could be shown in Japan. So same thing with firearm stuff. I mean, I deal with that in posters, certain things they can't show with guns pointing directly at you, certain amounts of blood, they'll change it into something else that looks like blood, but yeah. Back then, that was that was about it. Everything else was pretty much kind of do what you want, and the scripts had to go through that triage process where they would clean things out. Uh, and sometimes they'd be cleaned out after the fact. We had it boarded up, and they'd give us a new script, and we'd have to tear things out, move everything around, and get something wow. out of there. But yeah, and today it's much stronger, obviously. So yeah, yeah, speaks yeah, a little bit to. Um target audience i guess tom because you, you mentioned there you know even though it's 30 years ago they're saying oh it's a kids show whatever um as i said i didn't i watched it as a as a fully grown man rather than as a, sure. as a kid um so when you're when you're drawing it and i guess as the scripts were coming in did you get a sense that it was it was targeted specifically at that 10 to 13 year age group or the, the fact that it has so many um elements of phantom lore as i as i mentioned before makes it accessible to the the older fans as well so what did you have a target audience in mind um as you as you are producing it and, and um, how did you take them into account um that would be something you would have to ask the producer now what's interesting for me is that at my age the thing that the show reminded me of was when they did the animated version of star trek it was very cerebral very low on action Lots, lots of stuff to think about and to contemplate. And in watching The Phantom, it really was very cerebral. It was a, it was a very intellectual sci-fi type of show. And most of the kids' shows were real bubblegummy. They weren't very smart, so to speak. You know, there was hijinks, slapstick. This was a very serious show. Even when you mm. watched other shows, like, you know, whether it was their show of Prince Valiant or, or some of the other stuff, is definitely skewed towards a larger, uh, a higher age group, in my opinion. That might be why it had an ultimate demise, is that showing on a Saturday morning in the States as the kids just it was, didn't have enough action, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I saw it as having a lot of action. But there's after reading action, the scripts, there's, also, there's also some pretty high-level concepts that they talk about, too, in terms mm. of the way the companies are operating and... Um, yeah, the, the plot lines and, and certainly some of the language used uh, would seem to be above the level of, you know, I think there's enough um, going on, the action sequences and that sort of stuff to still be entertaining for the younger kids. But in terms of being able to follow the plot line and why those things were happening, perhaps that was a bit above the, uh, a bit above that age group. I agree. I think, I think if it was being done today, uh, they might cross over a line and go a little bit towards an adult swim. 
audiences mm -hmm. get, you know, is even throwing a little bit of language in there because it's, it's definitely something that sci-fi fans would love. I mean, the, yeah. the guy who brought it to market, loved Blade Runner, loved these type of mm -hmm. high-end science fiction adult, you know, R-rated movies. And so that kind of seeped in there. Also, Eon Flux was, you know, not a kid's show. And so the guy mm -hmm. who developed the characters, you know, they pulled it back a little bit. They sold it as a kid's show. But something I didn't really think about much, because as the designer, that's really the writing is the writers are doing the writing and the producer. And it's just here are the characters create a world around it. And so mm -hmm. the amount of action and, and who it's going to appeal to. I mean, I had fun with the flying vehicles and the gadgets that I figured people of any age would enjoy. Yeah. The transforming is, is I had to develop like the Mustang and then the Mustang transformed and then flying and then floating and then driving like a boat and all that connection to, you know, the Batman franchise was great for me as a designer is kids would see, you know, all these great flying vehicles, robots, kids love, I mean, we had robot kangaroos, we had robot samurai maids, mm. everything. And the whole buyout line was so fun to do. Mm -hmm. uh, that as, as an industrial designer, that was, that was one of my favorite parts was doing the buyouts and then the buyout phantom and, and the interchangeability. And, and that was a piece where now with 3d technology, I mean, I've thought of going back and building my design of one of the buyouts in 3d to show it as a real sculpture. And the way 3D printing is now, I work with a lot of people with 3D printing, as you could easily print print stuff out. So, yeah, well, we would love to see that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, so we've talked, we've touched a little bit about the the, the Phantom Law. The for a lot of Phantom fans, the the law of the Phantoms quite important. Now, yes. it might be something that you might not know uh, working in the art, but there's uh, Dan said it at the beginning of the show. There's a lot of trueness like you've got heloise which is aged about the she's aged right you've got garan sure. you've got dvl which is obviously a nod to devil which is the 21st phantom correct oh, yeah. all that. did you just have like a, a phantom consultant or, or something like mm -hmm. that or like how did you get it tied up so well with the law of the well, phantom? great question two things number one the writing team gar and judith reeve stevens interfaced and they had read everything ever written on the phantom they they just delved in and read everything and then they were in direct contact with the people who managed the property out of new york and so they owned the phantom they were the ones who could say if it was on model off model if it was correct with the their own story bible that they had in new york for just the comics yeah. and they loved the flashback sequence and throwing yeah. those pieces in there mm -hmm. and for us on the show is that's what made me you know, at the time, my parents were still alive and I had my mom. I go, hey, next time you come out and visit, you got to bring the big little book so I can read it. And so then yeah. when I'm reading it, I'm reading all the names of all the characters and the nods back. I'm realizing, mm. wow, this is. And then seeing the modern film even and, you know, all the nomenclature and the connection mm. is that it came both from New York, from the people who own the property, but the writers themselves, when they were given the property, is they just bathed themselves yeah, and got to know it so well. One, one of the things sure that uh, jumped out to me. Oh, sorry. No, go for it. <laughs> I don't know, Dan. Go for it. No, sorry, <laughs> right. I'm, uh, I'm getting a, I'm getting a sign come up saying my internet connection is unstable, so I'm probably jumping oh, out the wrong spot there. Sorry. 
Um, no, just on that, I guess one of the things that stood out to me in the rewatch, um, in a, uh, the the there's a YouTube um, video that's, uh, that claims to be episodes one through five. So I'm not sure exactly which episode it was, but I feel like it might have been towards the, the end of episode two. Um, there's actually a line where um, Kit Walker says, you know, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. It's an old jungle saying. And uh, Grand says, well, that, that's not an actual old jungle saying. And Kit replies, well, this is not the old jungle and I'm not the old phantom. And uh, I thought that there's, that was a really cool line to say, well, this isn't, you know, the traditional phantom, but gee, there's a lot of nods to it and, and that great connection to it. So that for me was a, a really great way to bring along the old fans and say, well, yeah, just yeah, let's enjoy this. And it's a, it's the 24th phantom. It's not one we've seen before, mm. but um, you know, we can enjoy it for what it is. That's right. Another, another thing that I really enjoyed was, you, you like was the flashbacks which you mentioned, but you also had a flash forward. Um, yes. Was it the twenty seventh or the twenty eighth Phantom that came back in time to the future in a, in a sense? So that was yes. a, a cool little nod as well. Oh yeah, um, they they love the time travel that, and, and like I said, yeah. as they had developed a structure for, I don't know how many seasons, maybe six to eight is they had to have enough room. And by introducing flash forwards and flashbacks, they had created for us as a production department, a huge amount of design that we could add in because they mm. could have done, you know, you see this a lot on certain Netflix shows. Well, they'll take an entire season and do it as a flashback. Yeah. And so complete new production design. And they were thinking along those lines when they were writing it. So they might've had a quick little nod to the 28th Phantom, but they might've had said, you know, maybe in season five, we're going to go to that. There's going to be some kind of tr time travel issue we're going to have to deal with. So we're going to have to go to that and connect to what's happened to our phantom world of today, because there was that dual level world that you see like in demolition man, where there was the poor city below. And then there was the nice city on top that we had in phantom 2040. And they wanted to go back to when the city below was nice and go even farther back. Mm. And to have that range gives writers i mean that's that's their dream i mean time travel allows you to go anywhere you want yeah and as a designer for concept work is when you're designing something that looks for the future and then you got to go even more future i mean it's like okay how do i do that because it's a whole different it's not just shape language it's color the way it interacts and trying to understand where technology is going we got flat screens on everything too because everything went flat screens and fan vehicles and trying to figure out what the world is going to look like at that time. And also you notice all the buildings have those wrappings vine like freeways. And that was nodding to the jungle. It was the jungle of the city. And so yeah. uh, we would see banyan trees and things like that. And that was my inspiration of having, rather than having these straight tube lines going through this world is you had these giant tree trunk like structures with these wrapping and yeah. everything was curved coming out. I mean, you can kind of see that on the, yeah. the piece of artwork behind me. My head's in front of it. There we go. Yeah. So this guy over here is that we have these shots. And like I said, I, I, everything I scanned, I put online, everything. And yeah, so yeah. you can see a lot of how that stuff worked. And then Maximum Inc. was based on Frank Lloyd Wright's concept of a, a building he was building. In, he, was, he designed in Chicago to be a mile high. And mm -hmm. that's the Maximum Inc. building. And so it's got all the little structures on the bottom. But then when you get to the top, you're a mile up. And that's yeah. that little penthouse with a waterfall and all that stuff. And I got to do these great fisheye shots, layouts, 
where you were looking down at the entire city and then you would see the freeways all came out from that one thing and and the vines and the visual look was connected to that and that you see in the shapes and the poster and and whatnot but it would lend yourself to spinning you to wherever you want to go yeah because yeah, yeah, yeah. we were in this new jungle how do we bring the jungle into this tech world well, yeah. softer shapes was the big thing get get away from sharp edges and tangling lots of tangled stuff mm -hmm. but having mm -hmm. those layers i like that they visited it i want to say that in the later episodes they did a lot more of that um i'm not sure if they did the episode where graft has the flashbacks of when he was in the war i don't know yes. if they they did do that one yeah i was okay. just going to comment that graft was he was a very complex um character like i remember watching it he, <laughs> As, as you're watching it and as you learn more about Graft, you, you, you really feel for him. And he's almost kind oh, yeah. of like, you, you know, he's almost like a good guy, but he's been caught in a bad situation. And, oh, yeah. And he's, uh, all of the bad people, like, um, you know, met, uh, um, Rebecca Madison, uh, the son, and even Graft, they, and even the robots, they had a great humanity to them. Yes, um, that comes from the writers. They are yeah. they are brilliant at that. As they may, I mean, you see that especially now in film, is you have empathy for the antihero. Yeah, and Graf, you know, mm. I mean, he plays along. I mean, everything to uh, the character in the in the Star Trek: The Next Generation, you know, to the Borg, the woman who comes down and she's just a torso. And I mean, when I first saw that, the first thing I thought of was the Graf character. He had no arms, no legs, and he's grafted in and plugged into all these things. And then to go back and to see how he became that way. And there was, you know, that he did have a heart, so to speak, that, that not all goes to the writers and you get good writing. I mean, one thing I have friends who've worked all through the industry and it's, you know, people will see I'm a 3d artist and they'll go, isn't the 3d great at Pixar? I'm like, well, it is good, but you can just go online and go to Eastern Europe or Ukraine and, there's these guys with their cracked versions of 3D Studio Max and Maya, and they're creating incredible work. What makes Pixar Pixar is their stories, is yeah. you love and care for these people. And I would say our writers did that, and they did that with the villains. You didn't mm. fully hate them. And that, that's something, they're all human beings at the end of the day. And by yeah. doing that, does it skew, kid? Not really. That's something, you know, a little bit, you got to be a little bit more mature to understand. But yeah. I think that's why, like you said, is, you know, high schoolers, college kids. We had a lot of that age people watching then ultimately who bought the, the video games, you know, yeah. the high schoolers and the college age kids, not the kids. So, mm. and that Graft was a fun character because of so many things I had to graft him into. Yeah, I had yeah, to create yeah. this expanding thing. And then the one where he had these giant spinning uh, mud wheels and all the different contraptions, you know, it was really fun. He was, he was a really fun character. So that was, yeah. that was certainly one thing that I was going to comment on this because um, to me, Graf's got such an, uh, um, a, a great face for a villain. Um, and then you're able to have that, um, that ability to put him in all of these different machines and exoskeletons and, and vehicles and all the rest of it. Um, yeah. I was going to, I was going to say about that. It must've been a lot of fun to, to keep working um, would, was he one of the original designs that uh, Peter Chung had provided? And then I guess yes. uh, I comment on your ability to play with that. Yes, yes. And so, uh, yeah, Peter did all the main characters, did none of the robots. Just And Graft was really, he got a little bit of structure on the chest, but it was really 
because what his genius is, is the action, the faces themselves, the faces and the body, the proportion for the ones that he showed the whole body on. But yeah, Graf's face, very unique. The grimace that he had, you know, yeah. and it reminds me yeah, of that was all And then I had to just create what hmm. carries him around, what did his arms look like? And he was the mm -hmm. same technology as the bios, but it was a diff it was a different look. His forearms I designed different than the forearms on the male and female bios. And they were basically, if you look at them closely, it looks like a woman in a bikini and a guy in in speedo briefs, because that's what they were, is is you developed them in such a way that because I knew I was gonna be clothing so many of them. Yeah, yeah. And I had to so then we had maid bios and samurai bios and you know, worker buyouts. And so some of them were just a thin skin of clothing over the top. Other ones, they had actually mechanical pieces attached to it. But Graft had unique pieces. His hands were unique, his forearms, and his legs were closer to the other buyouts. But the part basically above the waist that you would see on screen was unique to him. And that was purposeful so that nobody looked like him. And some of that, if I remember correctly, came from, he was an early prototype. So what they did to enhance and make him was unique to him. Mm -hmm. Plus we wanted him to stand out from the other, you know, cause there were scenes where he'd be standing there in a sea of biots and he mm -hmm. had to look different. Yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah. the shape language that he had was different and that was something that I did on mm -hmm. purpose. So. His grass face, he reminds me of uh, Stallone in with the, there you go. Oh yeah. That, you know, that, that, that mouth and the mouth grimace. That's and, correct. And, that's and a great, that's like a good that. call. Oh yeah. I would say yes. <laughs> um, so something that um, I've actually just remembered in in, in talking to you, um, uh, the cat was called Butter Air, wasn't it? From memory, correct? Yeah, yeah I actually, I don't I actually, know the reference. It's, I there's a named, reference. Uh, okay, I actually named my cat Butter Air after the TV oh, you did? show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the writers could tell you everything in there has everything's an Easter egg. They'll be like, oh, Baudelaire was, you know, Hemingway's cat or something. There is, there's a connection. Oh, wow. Throughout, I mean, the, the depth of concept from a, that's why I love working with them. I love working with people who, because as a visualist, when they, when they can speak about something and I can start seeing these vehicles in my head, then that's, you know, that's a synergy you have as a concept guy. And we, we work great together. But Baudelaire, they're like, that's a unique name. And they told me what it was from. It has a reference. You can okay, get on Twitter well. and say, okay, what's, where's, where's the reference? We talked to Tom. But I know there's, there's a reference for almost everything in that show. There's little secret stuff in there. And, and that yeah. as I go back, and it's part of our nomenclature today. Nanotechnology is one of them. And there's uh, fractals. Uh, lots yeah. of stuff that people, this is before everybody had a computer yet. And so yeah. a lot of their stuff comes forward and I'm like, man, they were way ahead of their time. Mm. And so, yeah, they, but graph. Yeah. I think that if they did a live action Stallone at the time would have made a great graph because <laughs> the grimace on his face, you got the, you know, his yeah. lips were really, really accentuated and, and he was huge compared to the other characters. When we did the character lineup, it was like, I, that, that, I, boom, as he a was just seven foot five before he was blown to bits. Yeah. yeah he was large. <laughs> Yeah. Um, the other one I like was Heisenberg, the robot who, yes. um, he just, yeah, he, um, and then the, the, the scenes when, uh, the lady on the trumpet and their, right. their interactions, that was, it was really in depth, just those scenes as well. Just like, and cause like Heisenberg was almost 
he he was almost human. Correct. Well, they the writers were writing for Star Trek: The Next Generation. I think they did Babylon Five. They write a lot of books, so their target audience is extremely intelligent. Yeah. You know, the geeks and the nerds of the world. Yeah, they yeah, drop yeah, yeah. all this stuff underneath, and so Heisenberg and everybody has nods to all the other stuff that they're into and so the fact they were given the reign they were to put this into all their shows you know mm. people like you and and many others ah that's great and it, mm. yeah to me it was you know maybe it was just ahead of its time i don't know it was it was wonderful i mean there's so many wonderful things about it but i agree i agree with you it was great yeah yeah no i think it was definitely uh, ahead of its time um looks like we've just lost dan i think dan's just come nope. back on um uh, Dan, you've come back on, mate. <laughs> very good. Sorry about that. <laughs> very, very unstable internet connection today. Yeah, oh, you'll just have to go back and listen to the podcast, Dan. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and of course, you'll be able to find that at chroniclechamber.com. Um, <laughs> oh, <thank you. laughs> um, do you have like a favourite episode or a, a favourite moment or, or, or something of the show? I mean, you've told us a lot, but um, sure. Like, is there, you know, yeah, like a favourite episode where you just well, as with all shows, early discovery, when he discovers who he really is, um, when he sees the, the weight of the legacy that he has to carry, that's, I mean, that was when we, what cemented me to the job, because like any jobs in Hollywood, they're all at will, was once we got done with the pilot, I was like, I'm in. I want to see this to the end. Because I was really hooked to who this character was. Because uh, obviously I'm in my 20s and I'm yeah. working on, you know, a kid's animated show. And it's like, this is great science fiction. This is, you care yeah. about these characters. So after the pilot, I'm like, I want to know what's going on with it. Because at the time, they only had like four scripts. They had a story Bible and four scripts. And I'm like, I'm in. And then they just, okay, start writing. And then they brought in other writers to fill them in. And it was just eventually, and you couldn't wait. It's like following anything else in the written form is you couldn't wait until that next you, I could, because the copy machine was on the other side of the wall, and I knew when the next script was done, and I'd always be like, "You're giving me mine first, right?" Uh, <laughs> I gotta think about that, you know. I, I, I need that, and so because I would read it, and then it was my copy, so I, I could highlight it and mark it and post it. Because as I was going through, if I didn't know what the hell it was, I put a little red post-it on the top, and it's like, "I'm gonna yeah. build this," and so I knew everything I had to design, but I would read it. I tried to read it because they tended to finish near the end of the week, usually Thursday or Friday. And then I wouldn't do anything all weekend. And I just would chew on it. Mm. And then come Monday morning, it was like, and I was really, and when you love the property you're working on, it's like anything else in life. It's like, you know, people say when you're an artist, you know, you never work a day in your life because you're yeah. doing what you love, but sometimes you're doing horrible logos and horrible designs and you don't enjoy. This was the opposite of that. I mean, I couldn't wait for the next script. I wanted to find out what happened next. The fact that I was able to design so many things for it. It was definitely a disappointment when we kind of saw the writing on the wall and it was going to die. But for me, it was the initial introduction to who he is, this new world with, with the technology that was there. And it was this combination of the young kid realizing this giant weight of mm. what he must do. And to me, that was it locked me in really early. And so then for me, I enjoyed every, every other episode after that. There were really none that, you know, we thought were duds. I mean, that there probably were, you know, you can't <laughs> hit every ball out of the park. But to me as a whole, because that's kind of how I look at a property like that, is that mm -hmm. as a whole, how does it sit? And 
I loved it. So mm. that's kind of where I was at. Yeah. Um, just a, another thing, as we've been talking about like the design and stuff like that, my daughter watches a TV show called Winx. Uh, okay. And the designs of the characters are very, very similar where they're these long, undulated oh, cool. type of things. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how that design is still carried through. Sure. Today. Oh, yeah. Well, proportion is one of, as, as a designer, proportion is everything. Is that mm. whether you squish everything down, if you saw uh, Snow White and the Huntsman, where they took the regular actors and they used digital manipulation to make them into the dwarves. And it was very unique. And it's, whenever you manipulate something into, whether it's tall and thin, short, fat, round, whatever it is, is, is that as a designer, we enjoy that. But like you said, is that they have to live in a world where that seems normal. At first, it's shocking, but after a while, we wanted it to be they were in the Phantom world. Everything fit yeah. them. Everything was tall and thin. And then the colors, when you were around the good guys, it was the warm, the rich browns. And I got a lot of that from the palette of uh, Frank Lloyd Wright during his Usonian time, the oranges and the, the light olive greens, you'll see this. And then when you go, you know, to Madison, she's in blood red with this acidic green, yellow shirt. And it was so that just color wise, when you were in a room and all the good guys are there and the bad guys sneaking around, they stand out because their color palette is yeah, different. Yeah. Their shape palette is different. And so I, I enjoyed that piece. That's interesting. What is the name of the, the show you said that your daughter watches? Uh, Winks. W-I-N-X. It's not, it's not okay. that interesting, but, um, <laughs> well, I watch, I have an 11 year old and a 15 year old and my 15 year old, all she watches is Japanese anime. And then my 11 year old watches pretty much anything that she can watch on Netflix that she enjoys. And she's got a wide range of, of stuff. So, uh, and I've always been a fan of animation. I, I, I watch everything that Disney and Pixar and all the 3d movies. I work on a lot of logos for these things. Mm -hmm. I did the, the frozen, the Frozen 2 logo was originally a 2D concept, and then I built the 3D model that's used in the trailers. So oh, I have wow. to come back hmm. and dimensionalize it, and then you have to match something in 2D. And So some of my clients currently what I do is I'll just build a model that matches something somebody illustrated. So I build, I have to dimensionalize someone else's design, and other times I'm the guy at the front end, like on Superman Returns, I got the finish, so my logo ended up in everything. And at that time, they had no film assets. They were filming in Australia. The name of the, the, the production code name was Project Outback. The, and, and the joke was we were at Outback Restaurant when my wife's water broke <laughs> and we had our first daughter. So oh. I'm working on Outback, eating at Outback, and bam. It was like, and I'm right in the middle of production on designing the Superman stuff for the Brandon Routh film that uh, Brian Singer did. Oh. But yeah, so for me, sometimes I'm doing a logo somebody it's, else um, designed. Sometimes a... I'm doing my own work. Sometimes I'm building a dimensional model. Sometimes I design robots. But because I've done this kind of experience, a lot of times it's like we just need to invent a robot. Well, I designed, mm -hmm. you know, 60 to 70 for this show, and I just build it in 3D. And so it's, it's enjoyable. But I think someday, and I don't know, maybe this will uh, push me towards that direction is, is I've wanted to build something from the Phantom. I've been trying to think what I want to build all my fan vehicles because those are just uh, yeah they're everywhere and it, it really was it, those were as a car designer that's that's flying cars hello I mean who doesn't want to fly and it's a vehicle so mm. super fun stuff. Mm. So uh, does your daughters like the fact that you worked on Frozen Two and and stuff like that? Is oh that yeah, I mean I had 
we had you know we had frozen underwear band-aid sheets yeah uh, they they went as elsa and whatnot and then as one of them got a little older one year she was elsa the vampire <laughs> and this is what she's now 15 and this was right around at a certain point it's like it's like kind of princess but you know, yeah. she had the white makeup on and the fa it was awesome. So it's, but yeah, they love it. And they get to, you know, they'll come down every once in a while and they'll be like, what are you working on? They're like, really? Are they going to do what's the film? And I'm like, well, I don't, you know, when you work on, on a film logo, you work on it way before anything is done. Yeah, yeah And yeah. the Phantom logo was the first real logo I worked on. And oh, little did well. I know, I mean, I've worked on over 2000 film logos. So it's like, that's kind of my thing. And as a, Industrial designer, I'm an advanced surfacer. So it's all about mm. when I see a 2D image, I can picture a three-dimensional shape, not just extruding it, but what is, is it a twisted form? Is it turned? And it's the same thing I did to the bias when I was looking at, when I first, I got the idea when I was using uh, figure drawing books to brush up on figure drawing, because car designers, we don't get a lot of figure drawing. Here I am working on a show. I need to get better at figure drawing. And uh, I was looking at the Bergman uh, sketchbooks and seeing how the muscles twist. And I immediately thought about making these three-dimensional three organic shapes for the muscles. So it was almost like skin. And so the robots were, were the muscles and the muscles themselves would move, whether they were some kind of carbon fiber or, you know, they introduced nanotechnology, but the shapes themselves, it kind of, as a car designer, they were natural. And it was great to be able to do that. I had the freedom to do that. I mean, one sketch I was going to show you was, this is a really early sketch. And this is how the robots looked before uh, I came in, which oh, is very okay. much, these guys had worked on multiple shows and they were round shaped. I mean, this would fit in a transformer world. This would yeah. fit in. Yeah. And so this is what I started doing to it. I started changing it into much more organic work. And so mm. it, and then I stretched it really, really tall. And so I did that with a couple. And I have one more I can show you of that. Oh, actually. please do. Please show us oh, as yeah. much as you've got. Oh, yeah. I've got quite a few. Let's, let's see what yeah. we can show next. Uh, I think so I showed you the work. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, if you're, on, uh, if you're listening to this on the podcast, you might want to switch over to YouTube because Tom is about to show us some original sketches. So here, once again, this was done by before I got there. This is what the robots were looking like. And mm. to me, I wanted to make them organic. And so yeah. uh, this was a very, very early sketch. And this is pencil, pencil work. And then if I take the paper, you can kind of see the overlay. Yeah. And uh, so I was coming in and giving them much more organic shape. And as I did more and more, I eventually came up with a final look for what, for what they were going to have on them. And so in the same sense, one of the earlier versions of the logo, because I told you it was based on Art Nouveau, was an extremely Art Nouveau logo. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so it's got a lot of Alphonse Mucha interlocking, weaving vine feel to it. Mm. But the basic, you know, stance with the crossed arms and whatnot is what eventually we finished out. And here's, here's an early sketch, just you can kind of see up close, all yeah. hand done. And then I had a graphics friend and she printed out the Phantom logo and we used an Art Nouveau font for it as well with the little uh, O's with a line underneath it. And that's actually a 1920s font from, uh, that was used uh, in Art Nouveau production. So uh, wow. moved that in. And so we, uh, we had all the very specific pieces like that to use on the show. See, so yeah, I showed you that. And uh, it's just amazing. 
Let's see. That, yeah, here's a pencil. This is a pencil logo. sketch I did okay, for sorry. Sean One in space. Yeah, I got to back up because he's so dang tall. Wow. And so, yeah, <laughs> if I if I zoom up to him, you can see it's that's that's just pencil, mm -hmm. and that was a rough. And then eventually he was adjusted. I think we changed the claws on his hands, and then the finals are all in Hearst's vault somewhere. But that's some of the few things I got. And then here's another early version, and this one was a couple revs in, so you can see where I had taken the sketch and I started building over the top and then I was starting to really get the fluidness uh, of you know the muscles the three-dimensional muscle mm. feel and we kept just stretching the characters taller and taller as we got to make sure they would fit in this phantom world so uh, let's see what else do I have that I show you now this might be tough to see but this this is a the original to this, this is the this is the maximum ink building shot from the top. The original of it is like 24 by 24. And so uh, I actually Xeroxed it and, and got it Xeroxed down. And it's, let's see if I can get a little oh, bit more light wow. on it. Yeah, and so that's looking down at the city and you can see, you know, yeah. the, the framing of the move. It's a rotational move with all the, the wrapping of the freeways. And they had a giant, you know, garden with a waterfall and whatnot. That was really fun and doing the fisheye perspective. And then that was used as the actual painted layouts because I did the layouts for these. But the original of this, which I, you know, somewhere in New York City is huge. And I would love to have something like that on my wall. But this is scanned in. Everything I'm showing you has been scanned in and enhanced so you can see it a little bit better. And, uh, yeah, I've even got a... <laughs> I've even got a page 31 back when my parents were alive is when the video game came out TV guide, the little excerpt on uh, the phantom down there in the corner. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. So uh, my dad was like, that's your logo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The logo, the original logo you showed me with the, uh, with the Onglong shape, the, it almost looks yeah. like the Star Trek. Sure. Yeah. And we went with a skull, which is the other yeah. thing is, I don't know if you'll notice, but there's a skull hidden in every vehicle design in the, in the show. If you look at the flying wing and it pulls up online and it opens up, you can see the eyes, the mouth and the nose. Oh, uh, wow. It's on the front. It's on the front. It's every vehicle has a skull hidden in it. Every single one. And I hid that skull through everything and just go online and look at all the vehicles and you'll see, you know, the, the thing would fly up and do the little Batman flying. You'll see the skull in there. It's, oh, wow. it's got the nostrils. It's got the teeth. And when it opened up, it's got the eyes. It's on the front end of his multi-cruiser. Uh, yeah, so that was funded. And so the logo ended up being a circle with a box because that's, that's yeah, a skull. It, it makes and sense. And that's why we went away from the Art Nouveau. And the Star Trek thing, I don't know. I want to say one of the people, and I want to say it was one of the writers, possibly mentioned that same thing. They were like, it's too Star Trek. Mm. And that's when I just went with hiding yeah. in, you know, just like on his belt. There's there's skulls hidden throughout the show. Yeah. Yeah, no. Um, it's, yeah, no. I think the skull logo does look a lot better. And, and the crossing the arms is very, uh, another one of those phantom law trope things as well. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, yeah. That um, is his, that's, you know, when I go out, my, my daughter, we go skating and they say, do your superhero pose. Nobody would get that because everybody knows yeah. the Wonder Woman and whatnot. But that is the phantom pose is, yeah. is and pushing the biceps out and the yeah. arched back and 
Oh yeah. And so that was something that really getting it to have these nice interlocking shapes and mm. that was before I knew how to use computers. So for me, it was all scanned. And after that job is when I went digital and yeah. a lot of it was based on, uh, I think I told you the animation company that was in Korea, I ended up working for them in their American company and he got me pushed into, uh, I got into 3d and I've been doing 3d design and been, so I've been in digital design since the early nineties, since right after Phantom. Yeah. Wow. And so I've been, you know, I use a program called 3D Studio Max, which I've been with it since day one, since it was a DOS program, 3D SR4, before Win95. And so, and it's all self-taught. And so for me to be able to design something and to build it, mm. yeah. So if, if this happened to be a 3D show and I, this was something I was doing today, oh yeah, the technology would be so helpful. So mm. much helpful. It just really, you could, you could really get a lot more done, a lot, you know, a lot faster. So... Yeah. Um, now, uh, we, we touched upon it uh, previously, uh, before the show and even at the start of the show, but um, could we go into a little bit more detail about um, your relationship with uh, Tim uh, Boyle? Tim Boyle is, uh, Tim contacted me around 20. I was still at uh, the Cimarron Group in Hollywood and I was running their 3D design division and he saw my phantom work and he had a script and he wanted to get some promotional material made. And so he contacted me at Cimarron and we designed some logos for a script that he had. And that little piece that I showed you, there were some characters that I did, uh, did a couple of sketches. And so we connected. It was because I was out of there by 2009. So it was either 2000, late 08 or early 09. And he was in the States for a while. And then he went back to Australia. And uh, we've just stayed in contact with, and I've read, various scripts of his and done title treatments for a few of them. So, uh, but other than that, uh, he's a, he's a phantom fan that I know. And, uh, uh, I wish they would have made a script. Yeah. I can't reveal it cause I don't know what NDA stuff is on <laughs> it, but man, it was awesome. And get the new, get to do a new phantom logo was really fun. So, and, uh, metal with all the modern logos that I've done. I had a three dimensional skull with fire, with purple fire coming off of it. And, Oh, it was just, it was so fun to do. And then I, I think I told you we even did a photo shoot uh, yeah. where we got a, a young Australian couple, a guy and a girl, and we shot them. Something in the story had to do with twins. That's all I, I knew. I didn't know all of it. but And shot them in action poses. I brought in, as you can see behind me, I've got some samurai swords. So I brought in some of my swords so they could hold them for the shots. And then we mocked up a couple of posters. And uh, I think that's about as far as it went. Tim would be able to tell you more about what's going on with that but i know he wrote multiple scripts on it and he had connections directly with hearst and so like a lot of projects come up and then you know when you when you heard you know like nicholas cage was going to do superman for a while and then it, you know a lot of movies have this cycle where they just kind of bounce down the road and yeah. i have heard grumblings of phantom movies back and forth over the years is hey then somebody's looking at a script again you know i don't have those connections as tight as I used to, but if I did at Hearst, they'd be like, oh yeah, they're looking at another one. They're looking at another mm -hmm. television series of it. But I read something where they said, now's the time, especially with we are in the heyday of, and they need material. And yeah. something like that has the uniqueness of a large time space. Well, so you got 400 years. Time I mean, it's going all the way back to the very first one, yeah. to the current, to the future. I mean, it's, there's an endlessness to it that, mm. and the people who know it, 
you know, I, the issue may be because it's more internationally known than in America. In the States, it's really DC and Marvel, but that's, we have a, we always had a huge, you know, when I was in France, the French loved the Phantom. Yeah. They love, everybody knew the Phantom. When I was working on it, they're like, what, the opera guy with the mask? I'm like, no, <laughs> the Phantom of the Opera. It's like, yeah, I'm working on a show, the Phantom. I'm like, what? <laughs> Americans, they just didn't know him. I knew him because my mom, you know, I was raised with much older parents. And, you know, my mom, you know, was born in the 30s. And so she had the, the little comics. And so I knew it. I'm like, duh. But yeah, that might have been its demise. But now that the world has gotten smaller and things are yeah. more international, uh, who knows? Who knows what the future holds, you know? Yeah, well, the movie was more popular in Australia and probably Sweden and stuff like that than America. And so, um, yeah. And one of the things that I liked about the Arrow TV series was the fact of the flashbacks where you had the two timelines. And with the sure. fans, you don't even need time travel, so to speak, because there's nope. 450 years. There's the Chronicles and, uh, and stuff as well, which is another thing that you introduced into the... 2040 uh, series as well as you've had the Chronicles. And so uh, Kit was able to read stories and, and, and watch videos of his father and of past phantoms and stuff like that as well, which was, Correct. Use, um, uh, which was really good as well. Nice. Um, Dan, are you back? <laughs> I'm not sure if Dan's back or is floating in and out. Um, mm. I think his internet connection is a little bit dodgy at the moment. Um, so, so thanks for telling us a little bit about uh, Tim Boyle. I have heard of that name, and I've kind of heard bits and pieces of what of of the movie he was trying to do. So, I sure. think he might be a uh, another uh, another person that we try and contact for a um, a podcast. Now, um, is there any is there anything that you think we might have missed in our two hour chat? Um, uh, anything that we might have missed or a story that you, another story you would like to tell or, or, or anything like that? Not that, not that I know of. We covered a great amount of ground, which was nice. Mm. You know, we talked about the staff, the production, we talked earthquake, you know, the design, my role, Peter Chung's role, um, how Hearst as a corporation really backed us. And uh, I mean, I really think it's a great property. I would, would love to see somebody take it to another level but uh yeah, it's a so great story and it's uh who knows who yeah. knows what the future has now you've mentioned a lot of times about your blog and instagram and all that we'll include links oh uh, thank you in, in the show notes and stuff like that but um you just want to give us a, a quick plug of how pe how fans can see your work and how people can see your work Sure. Well, the easy way is you can just Google my name, Tom Schillinger. It's spelled T-H-O-M, and then the English Schilling with an er. Uh, 3D Conceptual Designer is kind of the title of my blog. I have a 3D Conceptual Designer website, but that's old. The blog is current stuff. Like I did the Nosferatu for, ABC, uh, for AMC. I did the Nosferatu license plate logo, where I built the 3D logo, beat it up, put blood on it. And so that was one of my current finishes, and that, I think, is near the top of my blog. But just if you Google my name, you'll see tons of my imagery. I have, there's a Facebook group for my 3D conceptual designer. There's also a Phantom 2040 Facebook, Facebook group that I'm an admin on. Did the logo for it. I put all my artwork in there. So I've taken everything I've scanned and it's on my blog. It's on yeah. my Pinterest. Uh, and I've given multiple ways to find it. 
and you can find me through just a web search or a 3D conceptual designer, you'll find me. And like you said, by putting a 3D conceptual designer.blogspot.com, that has access to everything and there's tags. So you can hit yeah. the Phantom 2040 tag and just go through and everything you click has an enlargement. You can right click and save all that artwork. And everything I have at my house was scanned much larger. So I have big, big image versions of it. And these were all taken from, I just looked at, I have a, a 1993 Cyquist 270 megabyte tape drive. And that's what those were all saved on. And we had a little flatbed scanner. So I had to take scans that were done in multiple pieces like 15 years ago and rebuild them and blend them in. And so I was able to post pretty much everything I did for Phantom mm. Online. Yeah, and no, so, I went through the blog this week and it's, it's amazing, yeah. the content. Um, you're talking about the press guide of the, uh, the one uh, behind you. Um, Correct. Uh, it's, it's, it's a wonderful piece. I don't have a piece myself. Um, Joe, I think it was Joe Douglas who uh, uh, founded Chronicle Chamber um, previously. I think he's got a copy of it. and um, it, it is. Of this one? Uh, of the press piece, yeah. Oh, it's, nice! It's, it's amazing. It's on my it's on my wish list of um oh, outstanding of things. Uh, Dan, well, I have the oh, I have the folder. I think I've got about eight of them. I just can't couldn't find them before the show. Uh, Sharina Carlson was she started out as a production assistant. Now she's an executive producer at Cartoon Network, and okay, she was well. the one I think who found those and gave those to me. But yeah, she's yeah. stayed in animation, and she's literally right at the top and been doing it for thirty years. But I do have copies. If I find an extra one, I will. Uh, I'll get an address okay. from you. If, thank you for this, and yeah. get it to you. So, but no, uh, yeah, no. unfortunately, I have a couple pins. I have a bathrobe, a phantom bathrobe, oh, and wow. then I have an umbrella with the phantom logo on it of the twenty forty. Oh yeah, and these were these. Oh, wow. Not a lot of swag was given to us, but yeah, it's a purple with a little wooden handle, and it's got the the logo that's probably about maybe about six inches tall on it, and then I have a T-shirt that won't anywhere near fit me 30, 30 years later, but I do have a little lapel pin of the Phantom as well, full color. And, and I think that's probably about it. Maybe four or five pieces. I wish we would have created a lot more swag. I mean, now that you, the way the merchandising is, is with stuff now, I mean, we would have had everything, patches yeah. and coffee cups and, you know, and it's cheaper as well than back then. As that's well. right. Oh yeah. And it's, mm. and I'm surprised they don't market any of it, but that's a lot of companies do that. When I worked at Disney, the one property we never touched at Disney Interactive was Mickey. I'm like, why don't we have like, you know, a Mario version of Mickey and they know let's do this and this and this. And it was like, you have, you have an image that the entire world knows. Yeah. Let's show this off. And so to me, it's, they could leverage that. And they've done that a lot more. I mean, that was in the nineties. I worked with them. And so uh, since then they've definitely done that, but mm. yeah, Hearst, Hearst, I mean, they own a lot of properties and it's just, you got to find the right time. And there's a lot of money involved in it. I know that, but yeah. Us fanboys and girls, you know, everybody out here, we want the stuff. You're back. Yes. Nice seeing you. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's funny because um, the Phantom 2040, I think um, at the time, it, it certainly, it felt, it, I guess it goes to show how starved Phantom fans are of, of merchant swag because we actually in many ways felt that there was, um, this was a, a, a boom in, in collectible stuff coming out. And to hear sure. you say actually, there's hardly anything at all. 
That's correct. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's a really interesting point of comparison. And I know that Jermaine's now going to be hunting um, oh, yeah. desperately for a Phantom 2040 umbrella. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> there you no, go. Nice. And, and the pin as well. I like I like pins and I've actually got yeah. a, a, a whole board full of all pins and all that. So to hear oh, about nice. a 2040 pin, it's just kind of like, oh, there's another one to hunt down. And <laughs> I'm, I'm, pretty sure, I'm pretty sure the pin is on the blog. I'm pretty yeah. sure that if you go to the blog and you go to Phantom and you go Phantom Pin, Pretty sure I took a photograph of that, and I, I might have taken a photograph of the umbrella because when I find stuff, I you know because I need I needed stuff for my blog. My clients unfortunately locked me down, so you'll see this huge yeah. amount of of work. And two big clients, Warner Brothers and Disney, is you they're just you can't show anything. And yeah, so yeah. I've got six thousand images on my blog. I've got thirty five thousand images behind me on my hard drive. I mean, I've got so much stuff. Now, when I'm looking for work, I have offline work I can send to a client, but I can never publish it. And that's how I get work is being able yeah. to show work I did on whatever property it is. And so there's huge amounts of stuff I can. Everything that's on there now is I pretty much raised my hand and got permission, you know? Yeah, 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 so, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, so, Dan, I know you've been cutting in and out a little bit. Do you have any other uh, questions you want to ask before, uh, before uh, we let Tom go? Oh, just just comments rather than questions, I suppose. It's just interesting to hear um, how immersed you were in the world at the time, Tom. You know, it was a couple of a couple of years, I suppose, of your life in those mid twenties. But um, you know, it, it, to hear you talk about how it's your nine to five job, but um, then you'd get the scripts on the on the Thursday or Friday and spend the whole weekend mulling over it and come in with a burst of productivity on Monday. But at the same time, you're getting paid as a contractor to to do to do weekend work. Um, it must have just been a period of your life where you're absolutely immersed in this world. Yes. And it was wonderful. It was a great, it was probably, like I said, probably one of the, the golden times of my career. And it was very early on. It was two years out of school and it really set the stage and gave me skill levels that I've utilized ever since. Cause I've worked at a director level all the way up until my last fall. I've been uh, freelance for 11 years. So I'm kind of the hired gun, but up until that moment, I was all the way up to 3d design director, running a team, dealing with internal, external render farms, working with painters, matte painters, background designers, uh, doing television commercials, doing quick little uh, interactive uh, tie-ins for films, obviously lots of movie posters and movie trailer work, but it's all kind of all connected. But yeah, when I go back to that, the level of immersion, the level of love I had for it. And uh, for me, it's not, the projects you remember as much as the people in the process mm. and maybe it's because we were all young there was a lot of young I mean there was a couple old timers in there but there was a lot of young people in there and it was a it was just so fun the property was fun and this was before there was a lot you know none of the x-men's the marvel universe none of nothing was out mm. and to me this was this this was where we thought this is where things are going and that's exactly where they did go and we were a little early on the scene you know and mm. we kind of pulled out but the scene is huge now, and it's as people mm. see, it's it's probably the most lucrative genre there is. I mean, when I tell people, you know, like Road to Perdition, oh yeah, that's a graphic novel. They're like, what? They're like, yeah. what isn't a comic book? I mean, you you'd be surprised what doesn't come from that genre mm. of comic books and graphic novels. They think it's just guys in leotards. It's like, it's huge, yeah. and and some of the best writing you will find comes from that and the fact yep. that we got to take the comic strips which was the old version of that and bring that to life and yes it did skew higher than the 12 year olds you know 
most yeah, definitely yeah. adults love it. And uh, yeah. so it's, it, it was, it was probably the greatest, the great pinnacle time I've had. So I'm hoping and, for, uh, you know, peak number two. <laughs> and I think the, uh, I think the other comment I had was um, that, um, you know, people like to play the game of uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon and how you can get uh, connect from one actor back to, back to Kevin Bacon in six steps or less. Um, yeah. I think if you were going to play six degrees of Tom Schillinger, it would probably, you'd only need two degrees because you seem to have worked on so much stuff. Um, the, oh, yeah. the connection back is just uh, remarkable. Did you say 2,000 different um, logos or whatever that, you, that you've worked on? Oh, yeah. On? That- if, I, if I started opening up the films that I've worked on at multiple companies over, I've been doing movie posters since 2001, so 19 years. And, I mean, just... yeah thousands of movies and not everything finishes a finish like you will be in the running all the way to the end like i did a toy story logo and they were going to use it and then at the last minute they went simple so but i worked i did you know i worked on toy story 4 for months i worked on you know everything marvel you know you you name a superhero movie one that's out you know doctor strange the new one that's going to be coming out working on whatever there's, you just get bombarded with this stuff. And now the industry has shifted a little bit with uh, do a lot of stuff for Netflix, do uh, everything from poster work to their screens, billboards. And it's great. I mean, I get to work on, you know, I do logos. I did logos for M Knight's glass. That was really fun. Didn't go to finish, but shattered glass logos as a concept was, was really fun. Pretty much every superhero movie, you know, Avengers. And then I got to do something fun. I got to take uh, Age of Ultron and do 28 translations of it. So uh, a good friend of mine who works at the company that did the original US version, where it's that kind of the red ruby glass, and it's got uh, all sorts of stuff going on inside the glass, which are called caustics. And so it's a mathematical process that creates all this light shimmering that's, that's actually fractally accurate. And so I had to create 28 versions and some of the Chinese versions and the, and the Ukraine versions were, you know, like 19 letters wide and it had to match the exact look of the U S one. So sometimes I'm copying somebody else's work. It's really fun. It's a great experience. And sometimes I'm the guy coming up with the look myself. And sometimes they pick it, you know, the mummy, the new Tom Cruise, that was my logo. And that sat on my hard drive for a year. I did the logo. And then I get this frantic call because when you do the comps, you do them at about 2,500 pixels. And then a finish is 5,000 to 8,000 pixels wide. Sucker Punch did 10,000 pixels for that logo because we had the logo and all the names of the characters for a billboard and they needed almost 20,000 pixels. And so that also had the logo in environments that were green and fire red and orange. And so I get the backgrounds and reflect all that stuff in. So I've, I've had a wonderful array of work I've been able to do, not just mm-hmm. in film, but book covers and whatnot. But movie posters has really been my bread and butter. Uh, unfortunately, COVID has really smashed that whole industry down. Also, mm-hmm. I did a lot of theme park work and theme parks are pretty much closed right now. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm just scratching at whatever I can get, you know, but I, I'm, I've, had a very wide uh, birth in my career. So I've done product design, I've done furniture, I work with architects, I pre-visualize stuff. But the most enjoyable stuff is definitely the film-based and fantasy and science fiction-based stuff. Because sometimes I'm building for Battlestar Galactica, they had only a sketch for the Cylon. And I built the Cylon in 3D. And if you look and then you watch the show, they match the sketch pretty good. Because all I had was a sketch. So I yeah. built a Cylon all myself and it brought me back to the Biots from Phantom because mm. I'm building this 
robots, mm. so to speak. Mm. And uh, just, uh, sorry, just just to no. connect there while you're talking about that. I guess the the futurist in you, uh, and certainly you said you did some training in that, and that was very much your. Um, area at the time, the futurist in you must be so thrilled that so much of what you conceived in the early 90s um, still holds up today. You know, you can watch it now go, well, we did it. We, I can still see that we're on that path. You're talking about the fans and the flat screens and all of that sort of sure. stuff. Um, oh, yeah. In 2020, it still holds up. And you're like, well, that, that actually could still be where we're going 20 years from now. So um, some That's great right. um, perception and insight there from, from you and the team at the time. Oh yeah, and uh, I always when I see because I'm a transportation geek, transportation designers. We love cars, anything that flies or drives. Or and when anytime a fan vehicle comes out, I usually post it on the Facebook page because it's like it's yep. coming. Because there's there's guys <laughs> with the motorcycles and the cars. Have you seen the motorcycles where they have basically the wheels are turned and it's two fans and they're unbelievable. I mean, it's literally a guy sitting there and he's riding his flying motorcycle. And so this stuff is we are real close and when i saw avatar and everything was fan based i'm like of course yeah. it is and then obviously the avengers comes out of the ocean giant fans because that's yeah. that's something we can build and yeah. drones have shown that you know i mean fans are it's the simplest but it works and that's kind of i don't know when i looked at it it was something about alternate power sources and magnets and to me i just was like fans fans are the way to do it and mm. i put fans on everything and so it's really yeah. neat to see that and you see the stuff you were really wrong on also, but it's, uh, we don't have <laughs> don't robots yet, that. Holy, but we're getting there, man. Holy cow. Yeah, they are, yeah. if, if you watch some of the ones that, uh, that can balance themselves and um, Walt Disney Imagineering, by the way, if you want to look at robot stuff, look online for Walt Disney Imagineering. They have, they have this secret lab and they do these robots that fly in trapezes and you're just like, uh, whoa. I mean, they're like terminators. They're, their robots division because they do animatronics is i mean they have contracts with the government i'm sure because their stuff is the best i've ever seen and so robots are right there and mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. i'm uh, 53 if i live another 30 years i will definitely we will definitely see them walking around us and so we're getting real close to that mm -hmm. and it's exciting you know and the writers their vision they got it and i hopefully translated it to a position that they wanted and like I said, it was a dream job and getting one is great. I, you know, get, get more of those. I get little pieces in my logo work and the movie work, which kind of, you know, it's like scraps, but that was like you said, is I got to really bite my teeth into that for three years and it, it yeah. was great. It really was. It was a wonderful thing. Um, yeah, well, I've, I've really enjoyed uh, chatting with you uh, today, this afternoon for you and this morning for us. Um, uh, just, I guess just getting the insight and learning all about, you know, the Phantom 2040 world. Um, probably my highlights would be learning about the, the prototypes and the 52 episodes and, you know, stuff like that, which, um, you know, I just never had an idea of and, and stuff. So for myself, I, uh, I really appreciate your time today, Tom. You're welcome. Thank you for uh, contacting me. It's, you know, it's, it's something that, especially in the States, I get a lot of, uh, international interest in it because in the states apparently it didn't do as good as it did all around the world but the the phantom group on facebook is huge it's like i said it's probably 90 percent south america it must have been enormous down there and mm -hmm. uh but yeah it's i love it it was it was a great time and uh, i appreciate this and yeah i was i was up real early this morning just thinking about it and going through all the different stuff and 
familiarizing myself with the names, uh, you know, and looking at things like, oh my gosh, all the, the talent we had on that. Because yeah. there was, I knew all the basic people, but I looked at, you know, Lee Remy and, you know, we had Blondie, she was Vaingloria and just massive amounts of talent that came mm. through that. Margot so, Kidder is, um, you know, to, to have uh, Lois Lane from Superman is voice talent as well. Um, oh yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was outstanding. And unfortunately we didn't get to meet any of them. <laughs> so they, they, they uh, yeah, the, the nephew uh, who ran all the sound, it was all off site. And it was all like late at night. So nobody would come in. He didn't want to bother him. And that's probably something they wanted. But, you know, obviously I was young and we're all fanboys and loving it and wanted to meet these people. And very rarely couple, I think Scott Valentine came through once and uh, not very many others. So, but yeah, the shows came out great. The music came out great. And uh, I just wish there was a toy line just like you guys. <laughs> I'd have them all, you know? Yeah. 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 Yeah, now, you might you might have given it while I was dropping in and out, but um, have you actually told everybody? We'll, we'll certainly put it in the show notes, but um, yes. the the website um, for your blog and um, and your Instagram handle, so people can look you up. Oh yeah, you can look up three D CD on Trigger uh, on on Twitter. That's uh, three dimensional conceptual designer, three D conceptual designer. You could just Google my name, Tom Schellinger, and it's T H O M, and then uh, you can find it. And then you were talking about putting. Uh, links to it uh, at the end of the thing. But yeah, I have an Instagram account. I have Pinterest, but the blog is searchable, which is great. It's got over 6,000 image and it's got a tag. You just go down, hit Phantom 2040, boom. And we also have a Facebook group that I help admin for Phantom 2040 as well. And so we have awesome. a lot of crossover with standard Phantom people come over. Yeah. No worries, uh, Tom. Well, uh, thank you. Um, now, if you have enjoyed this podcast this might be your first time that you've ever uh, listened to us you can uh, subscribe to us via itunes or spotify or apps like podbean player fm Castbox, etc etc or we're also on youtube as well now our website is chroniclechamber.com our email which is chroniclechamber at gmail.com uh we're on facebook we're on instagram we're on twitter and like i said we're also on youtube as well um, so yeah, so if you, if you're new to us, so you haven't, um, seen some of what we do and all that, please subscribe to us. Um, for myself, Tom, again, a huge, um, uh, a huge blast, uh, having a chat with you, learning about your, yourself and your world, but also learning more about, uh, Phantom 2040. And I'm really envious of that, uh, of that post. <laughs> as soon as you popped up, I just thought, oh, wow, that is amazing. So I really yeah. appreciate you showing us all those sketches and, and, and everything. Um, yeah. So you're uh, welcome. Tom, uh, it's been, it's been a, a great honor, uh, having a chat with you. Well, thank yeah. you. And you guys have a great morning. Yeah, and uh, all to our listeners, uh, happy phantoming, and make sure you go watch some Phantom 2040. Awesome. Happy phantoming, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. Cheers. The year is 2040. The place is Metropia. Here, a new hero prepares for action. The man who cannot die. The ghost who walks. The phantom.
the Phantoms pledged to fight evil and injustice wherever they may be found. In this future world, in this dying city, with the fate of the Earth and all humanity in the balance, the Phantom is there.